This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to Today, we're gonna we're gonna go reach a little back further into history again, uh, in the same kind of epoch that we maybe covered in uh, well in a couple episodes, but particularly our Ouija board episode. Yeah, it's an important uh, epic or uh, epoch, and I think that it's one that we'll come back to because, you know, in thinking about like this episode, you know, something that, I mean, we're talking about like the late 19th century and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that there's a couple of different things that make the late 19th century, like an important sort of inflection point, uh, or a locus of analysis, like, uh, in terms of like the themes of this podcast and in terms of like the themes of like, you know, uh, our current moment, like, uh, mm-hmm. and just yeah, like in general, sure. like something important to, there's, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, late, like, moder- like, you know, this is the era of like sort of high, uh, colonialism. It's the era mm-hmm. of like, uh, you know, the real beginning of industrial capitalism, like yep. for, you know, people we've talked a lot about, like, the Cold War and the legacy of Marxism, you know, this mm-hmm. is the time when, like, uh, Marx's ideas, like, are being formulated and, like, are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking shape and gaining popularity, like, uh, and it's also the time of, like, the great uh, revival of, like, uh, occultism or, well, I mean, you can call it a revival, definitely a style as a revival by uh, many of its adherents, uh, yeah. But really, like, you know, the a boom in spiritualism and occultism and traditionalism, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, when we're dealing with these topics, like, you know, a lot of the discourse uh, is traceable directly back to uh, things that began in the 19th century. You know, we mentioned uh, Blavatsky yeah. a lot, obviously, you know, uh, this is like uh, a really key period. Um, so I think like, you know, and another thing that we talked about a lot in the podcast is the importance of media and like technology you know with yes. the podcast itself the podcast mm-hmm. itself being part of this you know media atmosphere of you know uh this sort of new uh technological moment was the ascendancy of podcasts etc you know like mm-hmm. uh and kind of a covid uh inflected uh thing as well 
like mm-hmm. uh you know the the uh, enhanced uh, virtualization of all social relations uh onto format onto surveillable platforms that are basically like mediated screens yes right and yeah. you can see that as kind of the uh a process like or the the culmination of a process that begins in the 19th century um yes. and uh that all these themes that we talk about uh i mean obviously we can go back further in time we can explore like the great age of giants or whatever but this is also <laughs> like i think a key period uh to visit uh and it's something no, that yeah yeah i yeah, think like i think on a on a foundational like on a very um material level and on a kind of um a more i don't know out there theoretical uh ontological level you know all of the movies that we talk all of the discussions we've had around cinema uh literally start in this era of uh, early photography and of yes. moving picture photography which is as we're going to see was bound up with these kind of the spiritualist revival and this idea of these various ideas around spectrality, I guess you could say, um, were yes. there from the very origins of the development of the technology. And I think right. that almost has a parallel to like the things we dabbled in talking about in the development of the Internet, how yes. the view of like the Internet as magic uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, pre- computer programming as a form of incantation uh, was kind of those ideas did, you know, didn't just like occur to people after they had built the infrastructure of this new technology. Yes. It was kind of there from mm-hmm. the very beginning. Yes, there's really a complex that really predates the 19th century between like science, magic and like theater. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, you know, and like, again, like y- the whole like issue of, uh, a lot of the issues that attend this, like are implicit in like naming these terms. Like even when we say magic, you know, uh, versus science, these mm-hmm. like words are very loaded in our modern parlance. Magic is a mm-hmm. word that's incredibly important to talk about like historically, but it's a term that, uh, definitely carries certain baggage and is subject to like a, a level of ridicule or dismissal uh, mm-hmm. and implies certain like there's a certain ontological binary in the discussion of magic and science but really mm-hmm. that binary is sort of a, a screen you could say over what's actually like a complex you know and mm-hmm. the the same could be said of theater something that is like you know uh, easily kind of like rejected or, or uh, seen as you know being not real or especially even in the age of cinema you know, really cinema and theater are part of a complex for sure, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or at least a, a lineage, but uh, it's definitely something that, that is dismissed or not seen as part of this. But really, these things have always gone hand in hand, like the whole like uh, the scientific progress has always gone along with the performance of scientific progress, sort of uh, mm-hmm. the demonstration of it. And uh, science is also like the things that we consider to be pseudoscientific, like alchemy, like occultism, like that is also like part of uh, like science, the scientific uh, mode of experimentation. It's yes. uh, always really belonged to. Uh, so these mm-hmm. things like go together and like the further you go back in time, particularly to the 19th century, but you know, even further before that, you can really see, how those things are in fact united uh and spirit photography uh, which is like kind of our subject for this episode is a great example because mm-hmm. it was something that was associated with 
new progress in obviously the technology of photography, the ability to do double exposure, things like that, and its mm-hmm. greater availability uh, and uh, you know various aspects of this, and also you know it's something that was part and parcel of this sort of uh, craze for spiritualism that was happening where yeah yeah, so there's sort of a double uh aspect to photography where you could see it as this sort of oh new sort of progress you know like uh coming out of the mists of superstition you know uh, to talk to use mark's like famous term you know like the mists of the religious world you know where there's Mm -hmm. sort of idea of like we're separating ourselves we talked about this like in our in our uh, gilles de ray episode and various other episodes the Mm -hmm. whole binary of like the spooky superstitious uh occulty past versus the you know the sterile scientific rational future Mm -hmm. but really like you know that's uh something that's like applied after the fact and photography had this occult aura around it from Mm -hmm. the very start uh as did a lot of like associate technologies like tv which hopefully we'll talk about but yes yes Um, and you know it even i I think it, it 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 kind of extended into the 20th century and this is highly apocryphal and i wouldn't even say i believe well i i feel like i've read anecdotes like this uh throughout say the 20th century where when uh westerners or people from industrialized nations would go into rural parts of say south america or uh sub-saharan africa and they would meet people there was often uh kind of a uh there were often local superstitions about not wanting to be photographed because they mm-hmm. feared that it was some kind of device that could steal your soul. Yeah, or, or something some along those demonic. lines. Like I remember there was some debate yeah. around like the Islamic like legality of photography because like of course hmm. there's like the ambiguity of image yeah. in Islamic. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, you know, there's obviously lots of. Uh, exceptions and and complexities in this idea but definitely it was something that was debated in certain in certain circles so yeah that that is something that attends like a lot of new technologies and yeah like the idea is natural like it's uncanny that you can Mm -hmm. produce using like the interaction of light and shadow uh this like image yeah yeah, and chemicals like this image this exact image of of a person you know it does i mean it really a photograph is in a way a ghost or yeah. it feels ghostly. Mm-hmm. There's it an does. It, uh, aspect to it. I mean, I'm yeah, yeah like I, I'm I'm a pretty big uh, film photography uh, buff. Uh, going mm-hmm. back to like when that was still kind of a, a thing when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I got a, a, an old Canon AE1, which just like really, uh, you know, I think you know it as as seventies camera is what uh, mm-hmm, some of yeah. our other friends called it over the years. Like, uh, right, yes, all, you know, and, and even like within the entertainment industry, there's always this uh, there's there's been this debate of the last twenty years about certain directors like insisting upon using thirty five millimeter film instead of going to digital technologies. Which, as the digital technologies have gotten better and better, uh, you know, basically. That's and they're so much cheaper and easier to film with. Uh, that's become uh, kind of a losing battle, kind of like you know vinyl records or something. But mm-hmm. it never ceases to. Uh, it's always struck me that even though you can get totally beautiful images on a digital thing, there's like something about the fact of like light hitting this like strip of film that has chemicals on it and then capturing the imprint of it that just does have this ineffable sense of realness uh, to Mm -hmm. it that the digital recreations 
don't even though substantively they're basically the the same thing and i don't know that's like that's a bit tangential but it just made me kind of think about how i don't know whenever i take a picture it's still kind of amazing it feels like kind of magical in a way because i'm not i i don't you know know how to develop my own photos or anything like that so the 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 sort of production process is a little mystified to me i know like in the broad strokes how it works but just the idea that humans were able to discover this in the 19th century is actually quite this is quite a staggering invention of that era and one that really i mean is just as important as i guess uh, probably steam power or railroads or you know the cotton gin etc cetera, etc cetera, in terms of uh i don't know coloring in uh, the contours of uh modernity and or shaping yeah. modernity basically mm-hmm. um and yes. it, but but it does it, it it's it is the kind of thing what is that arthur c clark you know quote about you know things so any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic well mm-hmm. like this yeah. does feel pretty magic and it you know it hasn't been with us really that long i mean 150 right. years maybe but uh but it it's allowed us to it's I, I feel like rather than demystify the world it opened up a whole new arena of mystifications basically yes right mm-hmm. like because yes. that, that was kind of the hope with all of this scientific rationalist thinking uh in the late 19th early 20th centuries that and you do see you see like marx and and lenin and all kinds of people and freud uh basically kind of be like you know we're almost there like give it like a couple more decades and Mm -hmm. all of this shit is just going to i remember like lenin saying like in you know like one of his pamphlets uh maybe uh, around uh the 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 time of the russian civil war talking about religion and saying actually that like you, you we shouldn't harass the religious uh you know we should be you know reach out to them where we can but you know even though we're all atheists like we shouldn't go after them because look like the real way to do it is like once we start building socialism upon like scientific principles and we start you know uh redistributing wealth and building a new society like this stuff's just gonna it's gonna fizzle away gradually yeah and i mean and of course yeah i think that wager did not play out the way i think uh all of these people in the early 20th century thought it right. would particularly uh, like saying that like the the introduction of new technologies would demystify everybody and make them kind of not need religion anymore yeah the secularization hypothesis like was something that a lot of people actually subscribe to the idea that yeah eventually religion would like go away like relatively soon you know like by now no one would be religious anymore or anything like that but you know what i think it, a lot of that comes from or that you know, uh, the impression people get from Marx and from Freud is because, like, uh, they have been, you know, obviously no one, like, studies, or at least, I mean, people obviously do, but spiritualist authors aren't uh, taken as seriously as Marx and Freud are or studied in the same canonical way. But Mm -hmm. really, those were the interlocutors. That was the environment that these people were operating in. And the Mm -hmm. reason why they had this, like, obsession and why they're always mentioning in all their work like you know making all these allusions to ghosts and to haunting and Mm -hmm. to you know like uh the whole idea of the commodity form in marx Mm -hmm. being based on this ghostly uh metaphor that's because that was the environment that they were suffused in you know like that's because that was what was going on all around them like you know so they were like sort of trying to in the same way they were trying to control the narrative and like say like oh you know we're headed towards a secular future but like 
really that was like an attempt to wrest control of this debate that was really happening between Mm -hmm. what like the you know like there's two sides of it you know i mean really like uh, spiritualism isn't really in line with like uh certain like um, i think that people would make have objections to on traditional religious grounds as well like uh, in some respects uh depending you know obviously there's many different shades of both but yeah like uh it was part of the the climate was a sort of tension between uh these two things Mm -hmm. um yeah uh i wanted to uh to demonstrate this like or to you know make this point like more eloquently than like myself uh kind of rambling i picked out like this uh essay from uh that's printed in uh the spectralities reader which is like a collection (laughs) of like a bunch of theory around ghosts kind of like going off of of derrida's specters of marx which like we mentioned in our very first or i mentioned our very first episode um you know i think is a very interesting uh piece you know whatever uh uh your view or takeaway from it is uh you know it definitely is something that started the the critical vogue around ghosts and haunting that i think like is on the whole pretty valuable um and you know i definitely think that that lecture uh is uh, has like a couple compelling aspects to it even though like you know mm-hmm. uh derrida like uh he <laughs> he's kind of like just like a pun based like comedian in certain ways you know like uh-huh. uh the uh-huh. whole thing of like ontology you know like uh <laughs> it's, like certain aspects of it are just like but uh, you know, I think that he makes some interesting associations. Um, yeah, and, uh, I mean, just a content you know. warning for everybody. This is going to be a theory-heavy episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's, I think it's going to be good. The, I think it's going to be good. Um, yeah. Because it is pretty um, interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, this uh, reader is dedicated to uh, the sort of spectral turn in, like, the critical humanities. And, I, th- you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot that falls under that. There's a lot of ways that people, like, think with ghosts, you know. But <laughs> one of my, like, favorite aspects of that is uh, the sort of media archaeology and uh-huh. the uh, study of the archaeology of media and the sort of uh, approach to that through spectrality, which is something that I think is uh, brought up by Derrida and his concept of, like, techno or techno tele discursivity that he uh uses often in that in that uh very seminal uh, lecture um okay. and in this there's uh an essay printed called uh, to scan a ghost which is like a reference to emily dickinson uh it's called uh, to scan a ghost the ontology of mediated vision by tom gunning and uh he talks about uh a uh interesting illusion that was popular well first let me uh read this uh which i think is an eloquent statement of something that we've already uh said this is from one section where he talks about uh sort of the the historical background to what he goes into in the 19th century mm-hmm. um he says uh scientific and occult beliefs as well as a fascination with devices of wonder mixed promiscuously in 16th and 17th century natural magic creating a tangle that later scientists and philosophers tried hard to sort out The optical effect of lenses, including microscopes and telescopes, even as they revealed new worlds of the infinitesimal or the seemingly infinitely distant, often got caught in the thicket. Controversies and skepticism initially met images mediated by new optical devices, partly because the effects of mirrors and lenses were primarily associated with the catropic illusions managed by conjurers and charlatans. Natural magic remained associated with the world of illusions and entertainments, the display of curiosities and extraordinary devices, staging spectacular demonstrations of electricity, magnetism, and optical phenomenon, but often yoked to scientifically uh, dubious explanatory systems. Uh, you know, like, whatever. Uh, I think that's, like, 
relative, but uh, although accounts <laughs> of the evolution of scientific thought and experiment privilege the dominant current of Enlightenment mechanistic investigation and explanation, the heritage of natural magic follows scientific thought and practice for centuries like a shadow. The romantic scientists of the early 19th century wished to reform scientific thought by returning it to its roots in the correspondences and metaphors that made up the magical system of Paracelsus, the Renaissance occultist scientist and doctor, but they also endeavored to enrich its esoteric tradition through scientific observation, including employing new visual devices, as well as integrating new conceptions of electricity, magnetism, and the nature of life. Uh, he goes into talking about uh, American spiritualism as well. You know, spiritualists embrace recent scientific devices such as telegraphy and photography, both as tools for conveying or demonstrating their ideas and as central metaphors for their communication with the spirit world. Uh, you know, so he, uh, this is basically just a, a more uh, succinct statement of some of what we've uh, said uh, so far. Then he has mm -hmm. like a sort of theoretical uh, disquisition on like what uh, ghosts look like um, and the iconography of the ghostly, you know, I recommend this essay, it's interesting, but uh, he gets uh, from there into um, the uh, ghost illusion of uh, Pepper, um, okay. which is, uh, you know, uh, something that was really popular at the uh in the ninth century in, in in england or in london mm -hmm. i think was uh where it was happening so uh you know he talks about balzac and kepler for a while uh and then uh he he makes his way to uh to this um he writes uh uh, Terry Castle has described photography as the ultimate ghost-producing technology of the 19th century, the true heir of the phantasmagoria, which is sort of, you know, uh, uh, an illusionary show of mirrors. Indicating that Balzac's uncanny sense of the photographic process still has resonance, Castle even claims that modern culture has felt impelled to find mechanical techniques for remaking the world itself in spectral form. Photography was the first great breakthrough, a way of possessing material objects in a strangely decorporealized yet also supernaturally vivid form. But still more bizarre forms of spectral representation have appeared in the 20th century, the moving pictures of cinematography and television, and recently the eerie three-dimensional phantasmata of holography and virtual reality. The fascination kindled by a decorporealized virtual body partly explains the uncanny experience we often have of spirit photographs, even when we, are, when we know precisely the photographic means used to create them. As I described them earlier, the ghostly extras that appear in these images as either semi-transparent superimpositions or oddly placed opaque interventions visualize a collision between the free-floating phantasm of Lucretius and a world of flesh and blood creatures. The disproportionate montage of these visually distinct realms makes a spirit photograph visually compelling. Spooky, in fact. Ultimately, what emerges in these images may be less ocular evidence of another world, whether microscopic or ghostly, than the way photography itself, as a medium, becomes foregrounded. In these images, we no longer see through the photograph and become aware of the uncanny nature of the process of capturing an image itself. Our gaze is caught, suspended, stuck within the transparent film uh, itself. It might be good to have like a slight uh, digression uh, before uh, mentioning uh, the Pepper illusion uh, more mm -hmm. thoroughly, uh, just to say that like uh, kind of what he's talking about here is like the way that photographs of ghosts like that claim to sort of capture ghosts in the 19th century were obviously very popular and they were part of spiritualism as we mentioned you know where uh someone would be like sitting you know kind of like in a daguerreotype uh type way mm -hmm. uh, and then like hovering over them would be this ghost and a lot of the time the way this was accomplished was through double exposure um mm -hmm. and it's uh you know it shows kind of the uh something else we've mentioned which is like the complex of 
like the occult and art, which was definitely something that was going on, like thriving at this time, you know, the connection mm-hmm. between probably in this episode, we'll talk about Arthur Conan Doyle and like his role yeah. be, as like a, a huge like proponent of spiritualism and like a mm-hmm. particular sphere photography. Definitely. But uh, anyway, so avant-garde artists would be using the same technique double exposure that was being used to create these ghost photographs both photographs that were like oh you know look i can make it seem like there's a ghost and photographs that were claimed to be genuine uh you know examples of capturing like a ghost on film and these you know uh operated in in multiple different ways where you know sometimes it would be like ectoplasm or orbs caught sometimes it would be a, a you know a more uh like uh apparition image of like a complete person uh mm-hmm. but you know uh various things and something that's very interesting this is not from uh gunning's uh piece this is uh drawn from uh a, a sort of uh a book about an, an art exhibit uh called the perfect medium which i also mm-hmm. think is very good although i couldn't find and complete for this episode but it was an exhibit of uh, spirit photographs that was held and there's a collection of it uh and uh yeah so one of the interesting things that stuck out uh from reading that that book uh, some time ago to me was that uh there was actually like a printed explanation at one point uh by this one spirit that explained like how they make themselves appear in photographs um mm-hmm. and they basically the spirit said that what we do is uh he said quote the success of our manifestation in these cases is to bring ourselves within the sphere of the sitter and to amalgam that sphere with our own when rays of light pass through the mixed aura they are refracted and often cause things to be apparent on the plate which you cannot account for so basically like the ghosts like whether or not like you know if you can say like oh this is double exposure that doesn't mean that a ghost isn't actually in the picture because the way that the ghosts make themselves appear is through like a a double exposure effect. So they Hmm. basically like manifest themselves and like the rays that appear according to the explanation of this, you know, uh, alleged ghost take from what you will, but like the, the ambiguity is preserved because you can't say that it's fake just because it's double exposure because the method of faking a picture and the method of a ghost appearing in a picture, they use the same process of double exposure. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to a lot of things we've talked about, about how uh, ghosts uh, or djinn or demons are not just going to, like, jump out in front of everybody and be like, hi, I'm here. Like, you know, or, you know, much too vulgar display of power, Karis. Yeah, exactly. Mm, And like like uh, that. That is always like that's the whole point of like esoteric or occult phenomena or like subtle phenomena, you know, like they there's always that question of ontology that's sort of bound up in it, which is and like that's what I think Gunning is saying in the paragraph that I read before where he's saying like when we see these pictures, we stop seeing through the photograph because like when we look at photographs normally that don't have these bizarre aspects of them, then we're just like, oh, you know, take that as at face value or whatever, you know, like this is a picture of this is a document. This is, you know, a documentary object Mm -hmm. you know this shows a real thing most of the a lot of the time you know now we're very sensitive to photoshop uh but sometimes less so than others whereas that really brings out something that really is present in all photographs which is the question of its reality you know Mm -hmm. and the whole tension between like the person you know that you brought up that that really is the reason why people are afraid of their souls being stolen or or whatever by photographs because of the the tension between the ontological tension between like the the picture of the person 
and the person themselves. This whole thing of image magic that yeah, you know, and appearance like whole, versus essence, and uh, yes, yes, yes. It also yes, yeah. it, it also does the the term that did pop into my brain, which I think is interesting in regards to uh, spectral beings, is a uh, plausible deniability. Yeah, you know? like just like an mm-hmm. intelligence agent. Uh, right. We can neither yeah. confirm nor deny that I jumped into Mary Todd Lincoln's photograph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You like know, it can either uh, be yeah. as Abraham Lincoln yeah. allegedly did. Uh, yes. But we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, he uh, he points out, you know, that uh, these this whole he says. Well, I'll just read this paragraph. Perhaps the most extraordinary historical fact about spirit photographs lies in the fact this is gunning again. That such images mm. existed for years before any spiritualists seemed to have claimed them. Numerous amateur photographers had inadvertently produced them before, as when, in 1856, Sir David Brewster, historian of science and magic, inventor of such optical devices as the kaleidoscope and one version of the stereoscope, described the effect of quote-unquote ghostly photographs. Brewster had observed, in this era which required long-lasting photographic exposures, that if someone moved out of the frame too soon, she either did not appear in the final plate at all, like the passerby erased from Daguerre's famous uh, 1839 photo of the Boulevard Temple, or if mm-hmm. she lingered a bit, or if she lingered a bit longer, but not long enough to be fully registered, left a semi-transparent image of herself. These accidentally spoiled photographs amused Brewster, who pointed out that he could be uh, that they could be composed intentionally pr- to produce ghost photographs. In his earlier mm-hmm. work on natural magic, Brewster had thoroughly explored the creation of optical illusions intended to create supernatural effects. The purpose of such manufactured photographic ghosts, he stressed, must be restricted to amusement and entertainment. For at least a decade, such images uh, were produced domestically and commercially before William Mumler famously proclaimed his photographs as images of actual ghosts or spirits. Although Mm -hmm. we don't know if such claims were made outside of the public sphere before Mumler, his images and his claims of their supernatural provenance caused such a stir that one has to assume that a shift in definition had taken place. The supernatural explanation of such photographs ran contrary to readily available technical accounts, as described by Brewster and others, and the apparently fairly widespread practice of manufacturing similar superimpositions without any supernatural claim. Yet the photographic production of transparent, superimposed bodies still offered an ocular experience of the image of ghosts or spirits, which were taken by some viewers as proof of their existence. So now he goes into uh, the ghost illusion. I think that he describes it like uh, in a good way. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he gives a good rundown uh, for it. Uh, around the same time as Mumler's claims, a theatrical device for the production of phantoms appeared whose visual acuity surpassed even the phantasmagoria and whose imagery and process closely resembled spirit photography. The famous Pepper's Ghost Illusion invented by Henry Dirks and perfected and presented at the London Royal Polytechnic Institute in 1862 by John Henry Pepper. Designed as stage machinery for the creation of transparent phantoms, the illusion used a pane of glass that emerged from slots in front of the stage and could be lowered as needed. The glass was angled so that it caught a reflection of a highly illuminated figure, usually an actor, posed in an area unseen by the audience. The glass also remained invisible to the audience, and only the reflection appeared, a transparent figure superimposed over the stage scene that was visible through the glass. Thus, while the actors seen on stage would remain fully opaque and three-dimensional, the reflections on the glass would seem virtual and transparent, as one can see scenery and actors through the glass in the foreground. Further, actors on the stage seem to pass through the reflections. Used primarily to stage simple ghost stories of apparitions and hauntings, the Pepper's ghost illusion achieved an enormous success and became part of the stage machinery of the late Victorian spectacular theater. The device offered the optical experience of living, moving figures that nonetheless remained virtual and insubstantial within the space in which they seemed to appear. 
alien visitors, the reflection appeared as attached images floating on air. The product no. of the science of optics, angles of reflection, the transparency of glass, the device superimposed flesh and blood bodies with phantoms in an uncanny and undeniable sensual experience. So, uh... So they're Something. doing blue beam in the 19th yeah, century. Yeah, they were basically doing blue beam. But, you know, it's actually, again, you can see the same sort of uh, dichotomy here because this is drawn from, uh, not from Gunning, but uh, from some uh, other work on, on uh, analog technology uh, and uh, this sort of uh, topic that discusses this very famous illusion uh, that uh, I, I had uh, dug up uh, previously. Let me see if, if I had find it. But there was a story that was printed. Uh, yeah, it was called... Uh, a warning to ghost makers, and it was printed in the Daily Evening Bulletin uh, uh, in, I guess, 1863. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so there's something wrong with the apparatus, basically, of this illusion. Um, and it couldn't be done properly like the actual night, according to the story. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Uh, and normally, um, like, what happened in the story what that in, like that they were performing the little skit would be that mm. some guy was being tormented by a ghost and the ghost would appear and then he would strike at it with like a fireplace poker or a dagger yeah. uh -huh. um and you know it would go through the ghost to spectacular effect right yeah. but according to the story you know is it true like again it's a victorian newspaper so it might just be like uh, an idea that occurred to somebody and was printed you know but again there's just more sort of reality and fiction tension there as well according mm -hmm. to the story the apparatus broke and they had to have a real person do it um but that information didn't make its way to the the main actor who was playing what? the sort of haunted guy no so when the ghost appeared you know he swung it and like killed this guy uh wow. so it's interesting because like it has like the whole the story itself that they're telling the play is all about like you know uh maybe the guy's being haunted i forget exactly what it is but it's like a revenge thing you know there he's haunted right like as a ghost yeah. like you did this you know so like that whole all those gothic tropes become replicated in this like story of like you know bloody murder and like misrecognition science, you know uh, science like, the gone wrong yeah, yeah science gone yeah. wrong in a way yeah it's also another wow. uh little uh interesting fact about this is that like this whole thing was like uh from you know uh to kind of call in marks a little bit like uh, this whole thing was sustained by uh like a huge like uh effort of human labor like you know like uh so uh, i guess um, let me see if i can actually cite where this is from uh it's uh cattlemen uh specters and spectators i think uh mm -hmm. it was in the collection but anyway so uh, she writes, the stagehands who worked alongside the ghosts had their own name for their workplace, the oven. The hissing, smoking, oxyhydrogen lamp made the oven unbearable. Even worse, assistants operating the lamp or trolley would be completely wrapped in black velvet clothing to prevent any stray reflections in the glass. The work in the sweltering oven called for amazing precision. The stagehands rolling the trolley to precise marks as the actors on stage mimed their reactions to the spirits. So, like, they were, like, under the stage, like, all these people, like, sweating and toiling, like, yeah. moving this glass like back and forth to try room. to make this happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, like, all yes. these workers are in basically in hell in a bucket and yes. having to work so that like the clowns on stage can you know dance yes and, and perform these mirror these uh yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if i call them pseudo miraculous uh, visions but yes and it's interesting that the point of this uh, like pepper you know uh the guy who perfected it uh who it's named for 
he was like a really big scientific rationalist, you know? So his whole point mm-hmm. in doing this was to, you know, uh, show that, oh, you could make ghosts seem to appear, but, you know, everyone should know that it's all an illusion. But, mm. you know, as shown in the story of, of accidental murder, you know, there's this sort of haunting that that happens. You know, a ghost is created, actually, when this person yeah. is killed by accident. Uh-huh. You know, that could exactly. actually lead to a real, you know, so... Uh, create, like, you know, this yeah. fake ghost leads to a, a real, you know, so there's that whole, it's a great example, I think, of that whole, of that whole tension. Very spooky. Um, yeah, yeah, very spooky. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the last thing that uh, Gunning writes that I think is super interesting related to this is uh, he cites from uh, this occult, Russian occult journal, actually, Rebus, um, mm-hmm. which uh, actually had to be, it was originally a journal, uh, I looked it up a little bit, uh, and uh, according to, to my research for this episode, Rebus like, is so called because like to get through the censors like, in late 19th century Russia, the creator of the journal had to like first market it as kind of like a games and like riddles journal which again mm. like is very interesting in the sort of you know interaction you see here uh yeah. but like eventually it kind of slowly shifted to be more about spiritualism and rather than rebus like a riddle like uh it started to become like man is the ultimate rebus was like their their new tagline you know huh. um and uh but uh this dude um M.V. Pogorelsky? Pogorelsky. Yeah, Pogorelsky. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. He, uh, Dr. M.V. Pogorelsky uh, wrote this interesting sort of reflection, uh, I guess no pun intended at the time, but definitely a good <laughs> one, um, about like the sort of proliferation of this high-quality glass like that okay. you could have, you know? Like a huge pane of glass with no imperfections. Like the way that we have like glass like mass-produced now like yeah. uh you know that was something that was just becoming possible like this illusion yeah. would have been something that was confined you know for it to be like a, a part of commercial display you know yeah. that was relatively new before that it was all like for you know kings or whatever you know uh-huh. uh but now like you had store windows with these glass panes right and you yeah. even have transportation uh you know like you would have like trolleys and stuff with glass yep. windows yeah. and we're like and you know I'm looking, windows yeah yeah i'm looking at my ghost right now like forward in the window of my apartment you know that's something that uh is a relatively new phenomenon at this time um mm-hmm. and uh you know, uh, Pogorelsky wrote like very evocatively. He said, uh, "The quality of multiple reflections that the modern city provides us with has turned it into the natural medium of haunting." In the window opposite you, you see the real street. This is describing Saint Petersburg, his trolley trip mm-hmm. to Saint Petersburg. In the window opposite you, you see the real street. It also reflects the side of the street behind the observer's back. Reflections of the front and rear windows of the car fall on it as well. Apart from that, the double reflection of the real part of the street under observation is imprinted on it. The fact that the car itself is in movement makes the whole picture especially complex. In clear air and bright sunlight, both real objects and their mirages look particularly lifelike, and what you get as a result is a magic picture, extremely complex and mingled. Passing carriages are not one-directional anymore. They move in a chaos, overtaking themselves or passing through each other. Some carriages and passerby look as if they were rushing forwards, but at the same time you are aware that, in fact, each step they make takes them backwards. If your attention wanders for a second, you also lose the criterion that separates real objects from their equally lifelike apparitions. Mm. So, you know, and uh, Gunning makes connection between that and sort of the aesthetics of, of cubism and, and later artists, you know, bringing in the sort of uh, avant-garde connection there. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that and you can totally see that 
like uh you know now where oh my god yeah that, that is like that is such the, a trend in the in same phenomenon building in architecture yeah. right now it right. is like all yeah. over la neighborhoods are getting gentrified and be and like uh adorable like 1920s houses are being raised to build these like glass cubist structures that are all basically reflective and ugh, yeah they're they're absolutely uh soul deadening but it that that is a really fascinating thing. I never really thought about windows in that way before and the reflections yes. they provide and how ubiquitous they are and how that wouldn't have been a common experience. Maybe people would have looked at the reflection in like a pond or something or like in water yes, in before water, that. Yeah. But, mm. uh, but now it's like uh, everywhere you go and like the everything being <clears throat> yeah almost creating this kind of a non-linearity of images uh all laid on top of each other like swirling and uh ooh, yeah yes and you like especially now with like you know actual virtual screens computers things like that the same phenomenon he's describing this sort of magical effect like uh-huh. the way that we experience the world at like this uh you know haunted quality of our modern like urban sphere uh yeah. is you know even more uh exaggerated you know i mean i remember you bringing up that sort of horror movie ad that would like whisper subliminal like targeted individual messages like into your head <laughs> that you would just experience yeah. like walking around like things like that you know exist and like this is i think that shows sort of how you know this time this inflection point of like technological progress like you know taking us out of the misty uh spooky superstitions of the past like yeah. really like it is uh, a turning point towards like this haunted uh existence that we have now Fucking you know haunted house uh, basically that we're yes. all living in now yes yes yeah. um and wow. like the sort of I- proliferation of ideas like about spiritualism like about the the nature of the soul as like a, a sort of spirit like as light or something uh mm-hmm. you know light beings uh, i mean we talked about that in uh the ce5 episode about those fuzzy yes. i mean we'll get back to that later but the i mean those basically were kind of like spirit photography pictures they were showing of course yes. i'm sure they were shot on digital cameras but um you know I yes mean, well it's uh, the same thing like orbs you know like orbs they're yep. like you know the thing about orbs is that it's the same tension where like oh is this double exposure uh, with these orbs or these ufos you know it's like the ufo pictures have the same phenomenon have the same aspect to them where it's mm-hmm. like is this trickery or is this a real photograph and like in those sort of d- digital photos like oh you know is this a camera imperfection is this a, a is this trickery or is this, you know, some kind of real phenomena being captured, you know, and what is the yeah. significance of the answer to that question, you know? Well, like, like, uh, a, a, anybody, anybody that's shot on, like, a DSLR camera with, like, a sort of shallow depth of field lens, like, is familiar with, like, the bokeh or bokeh or whatever, um, which is, like, when, you know, the, the background is very out of focus or whatever plane is out of focus, any kind of light becomes this, like, perfectly symmetrical, ethereal orb so like i can definitely see how uh when they were first developing this technology in the 1800s when perhaps like because that is basically an optical illusion uh mm-hmm. based on like where the lens is focused at and you yeah. know you see that in the background and uh you could to- and even a lot of ufo videos that don't have great exposure like what you're really looking at like sometimes i, I can tell it's like you're looking at a bokeh uh, dot like floating around in the sky so there's like a point of light somewhere but it's com- it's actually completely obscuring what the source of light is and the actual features mm-hmm. of it um yes. so yeah i don't know 
there's right. a lot yeah. of room for deception and uh, misapprehension of yes. what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that, yeah, we talked about this, I guess, uh, maybe in our recent UFO episode, the whole aspect of deception being kind of part and parcel uh, of this. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, it's, uh, yes, it's a, it's very, uh, a very intriguing uh, phenomenon. So I think that, yeah, like these, uh, these things like always come with the uh, sort of these technological advances or these new developments or these new media you know media medium you know like uh Mm -hmm. there's a significance to the fact that these these words are used like in both uh contexts um Mm -hmm. you know the the development of these new things often like is attended by uh these uh sort of uh occult or or spooky components uh to them now uh, that I yeah. think about it, uh, what what is a more loaded term uh, or a name for a company in this type of industry than industrial light and magic? Yeah, exactly. Right, like, like that uh, that hits all magic? three yeah. basically. Like no, light being no. this is yeah, like industrial exactly. capitalism, yeah. and they're it's doing all magic. industrial light and magic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're doing magic. Uh, um, yeah, and there's you know that whole aspect of yeah like an industrial way to magic you can even bring in like actual like you know ceremonial or like uh you know esoteric magic ver- like you know and the, the tension and the, the, the idea of magic that's always existed between like illusionism and like uh you know the transformation of reality and between reality and illusion and the sort of ontological question of it is very much there in the mm-hmm. like connotations of of industrial light uh, and magic, um, you know, uh, and yeah, of course, like the industrial thing is there as well, and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, the light uh, aspect, yeah. I was thinking, do we want to just talk real quick about kind of like one case study in spirit photography? Probably, I think you you mentioned his name earlier, but uh, William Mumler and like yeah, his he's like the uh, most famous spirit photographer of the 19th century. Yeah, probably. and and yeah, he yeah. he made quite a splash. And also uh, the interesting thing about him, so he he started uh, I guess in the 1860s, but moved to New York after the Civil War, and then. Uh, basically like blew up into uh, he started 
basically doing spirit photography full time uh, after he developed a self-portrait that appear, appeared to feature the apparition of his cousin who had been uh, dead for 12 years. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing that is interesting about that is like this, uh, this very much coincides with like what we talked about in the Ouija episode, which is like this became a boom market a huge growth industry because so many had so many people had died in the civil war that there was an ama- there was incredible demand just like there was for Ouija boards for spirit photography so this guy you know set up a business and was like I will take a picture of you that will have your dead relative who died at Antietam in it <laughs> like basically yeah, right yeah and he made a lot of money uh i guess doing it and and got some uh, some fame for it. i guess his wife hannah was a famous healing medium who had her own spiritual business on the side and mm-hmm. so they were like a one-stop shop for spiritualist uh, activity but you know very wrapped up in this like technology that they were using and then I guess another thing that's like interesting about him is that one of the people that became one of his most vocal critics and played an important role in like kind of taking him down was none other than a PT Barnum. Right. Uh, Yeah. He like noted uh, Freemason and yes. Yeah. He like hmm. replicated one of his pictures or something and like he like uh, you know spoke at his trial against him. Yeah, he hired um, a, yeah. another photographer, Abraham Bogardus, uh, to create a picture that uh, appeared to show Barnum with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln just to, to demonstrate the ease with which such spirit photographers could be created. And that that's in reference to like probably his most famous uh, spirit photograph ever, which was of uh, like an elderly Mary Todd Lincoln. I guess not elderly, right. but like Mary Todd Lincoln with like the ghost of Abraham Lincoln standing behind her with like his hands like kind of lovingly on her shoulders and i guess that was uh (laughs) let's see that was around 1869 um and uh apparently mumler did not know that his sitter the person sitting for the photograph was mary todd lincoln instead believing her to be a mrs tundall uh and uh this was uh, i guess this is in a book by a paranormal researcher called ghost caught on film uh, but the author oh. in that says that Mumler did not discover who she was until after the photo was developed. Uh, and the, the College of Psychic Studies, referencing notes belonging to William Stanton Moses, uh, who appeared in photographs by other spirit photographers, claimed the photo was taken in the early 1870s, that Mrs. Lincoln assumed the name of Mrs. Lindell, and that she had to be discouraged, she had to be encouraged by Mumler's wife, who was a medium, to identify her husband on the photo. Uh, although the image has been dismissed as a fraudulent double exposure, it has been widely circulated. Um, and I guess in the letter of the Bo- in a letter to the Boston Record, Mumler claimed the photograph had been taken late '72, and so that became like a centerpiece of this fraud trial in 1869. Um, yeah. That that doesn't make any sense. He if, was if acquitted, it was, though, wasn't he? He like, was acquitted. Uh, he was acquitted because the yeah. prosecution could not prove beyond reasonable doubt that he was fabricating the photographs, uh, but it did basically mess up his career. And uh, yes. Yeah. Well, there was also like another like highly publicized trial, like in the United States, I think like at first people would sort of say like, oh, you know, like they like he he got he was acquitted kind of like, you know, it was like no collusion, et cetera. Like not that, you know, he didn't do anything like the whole Uh like it all just like uh, basically, you know, people saw it as uh, a lot of people at the time saw it as being 
uh, that he kind of, uh, you know, the, the U.S. government had kind of, like, put its stamp on the authenticity of spirit photography in general uh, in acquitting hmm. him, you know, like, the way that these things get, like, taken, uh, you know, so, uh, like, uh, yeah, there was another it. dude, yeah, exactly, couldn't be disproven, so, uh, yeah, there was another dude, uh, Boujouet, uh, mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, tried elsewhere, I think, in, in, the, in the U.K., um, yeah, uh, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he confessed basically and was, uh, and was convicted. Uh, I guess he simulated spirits by wrapping dolls in gauze and attaching photos of faces onto them. And, uh, uh yeah, okay. that's, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, dolls, uh, yeah, dolls also like are a sort of creepy, uh, image magic, uh, technology and, and, and definitely, definitely, yes, um, yeah, there's, uh, I'm reading from, uh, that, uh, sort of collection, uh, about that exhibit, uh, The Perfect Medium, that was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, collected. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and, uh, it's talking about some of these, uh, these trials that, that occurred. Uh, there was one dude, uh, Lemari, uh, and, uh, who believed that photography could be the prime instrument for the project to rationalize spiritualism. Uh, he writes, in the French context, a few applications can be cited in astronomy, mycoscopy, medicine, and physiology, but overall these are isolated experiments of not lead photography being used on a wider scale at the time. Despite this lack of effective applications since 1839, when Francois Arago had first presented the process, photography had always benefited from a scientific aura whenever it was discussed. Le Marais drew on the scientific credit to place photography at the heart of the project to objectify spiritualism. The pieces he published in the Revue Spirit in the early 1870s leave little room for doubt that in his eyes, photography was an instrument of objectivity, which would help mm. to bring the phenomena of spiritualism into the field of official science. For example, in April 1873, he wrote, Photography is a means made available to the spirits to give irrefutable proof of their existence and their presence among you, as well as providing irrefutable proof or a grain of truth. Photography is also described by Le Marie as the most obvious of the truths uttered by our doctrine. The spiritualist saw photography as a godsend offering twofold benefits. Not only would it reinforce the belief of the faithful, it would also serve to convince new followers. It is easy to understand why photography, as an instrument of both faith and proselytization, seemed to them to be of all powerful interests, and why, from the early 1870s, they continuously called for spiritualists to become photographers and photographers to become spiritualists. We would like mm. a, photograph- a photograph or medium to take on the reproduction of the features of a spirit, wrote Lemery in October 1871 in Revue Spirit. However, mm. more than two years were to elapse between this initial call in October 1871 and the first mention of Bourgeois in the columns of the Revue Spirit in January 1874, suggesting that the passage from theory to practice was no easy matter. What is the explanation for this period of latency between early aspirations towards spirit photography and its actual implementation? How should we interpret uh, what ultimately seems to be a rather lengthy procrastination on the part of a movement engaged in a process of renewal? An initial answer to these questions lies in Kardec's suspicion of spirit photography. It should also be remembered that early in the 1870s, stereoscopy had made spirit imagery widely available for entertainment purposes, thus discrediting the iconography of belief from the outset. Uh, yes, it, yeah, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Kardec's initial doubts of the existence of recreational images obliged the spiritualists to implement an energetic strategy to render photography credible. They needed to make people believe, in the way described by Marcel Mauss, that it was possible to photograph the spirits of the dead. And for this, two years were not quite enough. 
Yeah, wow. They goes well. Uh, I mean, you you see so many yeah. like uh, parallel, yeah. like immediately trying to like instrumentalize, like use a a, p- a new piece of like industrial technology to uh, prove, like in big air quotes, uh, their religious practices or beliefs to a sci- mm. increasingly scientific world. Right. I mean, yeah. it almost reminds me of kind of like a cosmonaut Jesus Christ kind of things. Uh, certain, maybe certain tendencies, uh, even in like with Soviet parapsychology, you know, uh, parapsych- paraphysicists, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. To try to reconcile these things or like get exit. I guess the, the thrust is a little different because they were really uh, kind of like almost, I, I don't know, almost maybe playing more to the spiritual or religious crowd as scientific people trying to like find whereas this is almost the opposite it's like spiritual people trying to win the approval of scientific people uh yes like, you know win at their win at the game on their own yeah their similar terms. to the the bigfoot thing where it's like you know mm-hmm. we want this to become like a an incredible field of of scientific inquiry Uh, But, you know, for one, that's never going to happen because Bigfoot's definitely a djinn. And secondly, (laughs) like, you know, if that did happen, like a lot of Bigfoot researchers would then like be out of like a job because they'd have to go to grad school or whatever. Maybe they would get an an honorary doctorate for discovering Bigfoot. But But, but also, like, even Um, more specifically, like, I think uh, Bigfoot and UFOs, the UFO culture also has this kind of same mentality of like, if we get a good enough of at least maybe now they're just moving on towards a let's contact them you know by meditate by doing tm or something out in the desert but like for most of the the last like 50 60 years it's been like if we can get a good enough photograph or a good enough video of a ufo then people are going to have to scientifically accept it but like there's something that never even though they do have videos of it uh there is that um that ambiguity that we talked about like earlier where it seems almost like the ufos are acting the way ghosts were said to act where like we're only gonna reveal ourselves in a kind of double exposure environment so that we have plausible deniability and there still has to be an element of like faith uh that Mm -hmm. cannot be verified by current science and so it's hard you know you can't really just wish yourself kind of out of that dilemma so it stays in this like liminal category yeah this is interesting about uh Bouguet. uh uh i guess he was tried in his native france because this goes into kind of his trial and also his, his methodology mm-hmm. uh Bouguet himself did a great deal to generate belief a journalist at the time notes the photographer gave a sort of religious character to the evocation in order to make people believe in supernatural effects the leaf calls for ritual, and everything about the sittings at Bouguet's studio had a ritual character. Following a procedure frequent in the occult sciences, the client was often made to wait for the photographer for a considerable time. Expectation must be created. After waiting in this way, it was not uncommon for Bouguet's clients to be asked to come back another day, as the previous session had exhausted the photographer's mediumistic powers. When the client was at last shown into the studio, the active phase of the ritual began. Bouguet would enter the room in a trance. He would launch into a series of incantations and magnetic passes around the camera, take his head in his hands, and groan. It seems a music box was sometimes used to create sounds favorable to the invocation of spirits. In other words, all the necessary ingredients were assembled to put the client in a situation of belief. The Mm. process developed by Bouguet and the spiritualists to mobilize belief seems to have been a 
effective, at least among the movement's followers. Activity expanded the studio on the Boulevard Montmartre. While continuing to take traditional portraits, Bouguet would receive an average of nearly $50, sorry, 50 orders a month, dollars in uh, 19th mm-hmm. century France, excuse me, 50 <laughs> orders a month for spirit photographs. If the clients could not go to his studio in person, he would work from portraits they supplied. His trade with the spirits enabled him to increase his annual turnover by about 20%. Bouguet was doing well. But in late 1874, Bouguet came under the surveillance of an officer of the peace called Julien Lombard, who had just been given the task of setting up a prefectural photographic department by Léon Renan, head of the Mm. Paris police. A specialist in political surveillance, Lombard followed the developments in the spiritualist movement closely and took a particular interest in its ramifications in socialist groups. Uh, wow! Okay. To this end, Somebody was getting too hot to on something. The original, the original, uh, the original uh, like uh, OSS, like uh, you know, psyop department is here, you know, investigating mm-hmm. the 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 socialist spiritual uh, discoveries. To this end, he received the Revue Spirit at police headquarters. On seeing the spirit photographs on its pa- in its pages, he guessed they were fakes and decided to investigate Bouguet. This would make a good movie i'm just picturing like this guy yeah. like getting like a spirit <laughs> photograph like on his desk and be like Mon dit! like you know like uh you know lombard visited uh Bouguet anonymously had his portrait taken in order to catch the photographer red-handed produced a warrant and arrested him two months later on 16th and 17th june uh 1875 Bouguet, uh Marie, and the american medium alfred henry Furman were all tried for fraud in the seventh chamber of the correctional court of the sand uh, six years earlier, Mumler had appeared before a court in New York for the same reasons. However, the French trial was nothing like its American predecessor. Unlike mm. Mumler, who persisted in claiming that his powers were genuine throughout the hearing on being arrested, Bouguet at once confessed that he had no powers as a medium and obtained his apparition <laughs> solely by the fraudulent use of double exposure. In the United States, the trial had unfolded as a binary struggle between the defenders and detractors of spirit photography. In France, Bouguet's apostasy made matters more complicated. Instead of two different interests, groups they were three overtly anti-spiritualist prosecution the doctrine supporters gathered around le marie and the fraudulent photographer during the hearing the debate centered around the spiritualist strategy for fostering belief it is the persuasion they attempted to create that is laid out before you prosecuting counsel told the jury each of the three parties set out their arguments concerning the strategy of persuasion for reasons that went further than photography and which had more to do with the ministry's desire to combat spiritualism as a political and religious force the district attorney maitre de bois was at pains in his uh, summing up to refute the belief system built up by the spiritualists point by point. He denounced not just their bizarre and ridiculous doctrine, but also the unshakable credulity of the clients and the colossal hoax perfected by the photographer. Almost mm. seems like he was kind of a patsy in a way, but uh, like anyway, sent out there yeah. to get to get popped and make everything yeah. like, shit coat the whole thing. Yeah, he was shown. Mm. Well, yeah, for various reasons, because there was a huge thing for spiritualism in France at that time, as yeah. well as other places, you know, like uh, and like. Well, uh, and I, I even remember, wonder like, is there continuity because we we talked about uh, Eliphas uh, Levi and how he was uh, kind of to my surprise like dabbled in various like currents of socialism. Like mm-hmm. before and during his fascination with the occult, so I wondered if, like, in contrast to maybe some other countries in Europe where there was maybe more like conservative or right wing character to uh, some of the spiritualism, if there was like a more robust left current, which then maybe would have like raised the alarm 
Vision yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yes, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there were, like, both sides, like, were interested in this. And the same, like, you know, you said, like, you know, people seize upon photography, like, for their own purposes, you know, whether yeah. they want to prove the existence of ghosts or they want to disprove the existence of ghosts in yeah. the exact same manner, you know, perhaps, like, uh, in the same way, like, new ideological technologies, like, are seized upon by, like, mm-hmm. different currents in the in the political uh, arena, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so I think For that sure. there's, like, a left and right, like, uh, you know, like, uh, certain people, like, maybe we'll talk about Adorno later, you know, he would consider, like, all occultism to be, like, fundamentally right-wing or whatever, but of course it's not the case, yeah. like, at all, like, you know, and his own intellectual heritage, like, definitely speaks to that, but, like, you yeah. know, the, the uh, but... Yeah, well, in terms of Eliphas Levi, like, one of his big things, like, with Baphomet was, like, the principle, he was into magnetism, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, something that I'm reminded of in, in th- thinking about France is, like, uh, Marie Curie, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, like, uh, her husband, her lesser-known husband, I think her husband was, like, into spiritualism, uh, mm. like, in a big way, and, like, their discovery of radioactivity, like, that kind of, like, uh, you know, sort of almost seems like it would give, like, the idea, like, oh, there's this invisible force that no one, like, believed was real, you know, yeah. like, that, uh, like, that sort of seems like, okay, well, maybe this, like, ectoplasm, uh, or these sort of, uh, supernal fluids could also, mm-hmm. uh, be real, and, sure. uh, what, yeah, Levi's big interest was in magnetism, which was also mm-hmm. a huge interest of these people, you know, mag- like, the whole magnetic aspect of Baphomet, you know, is, like, balancing out you know the dark and the light you know he's male he's female he's uh blah blah blah, etc and i mean now we do know we do know that like the role the the incredibly important role that electromagnetism plays in like the you know the the earth it's uh, the entire biosphere basically is protected Mm -hmm. by this like like electromagnetic shield and uh and you know other planets like Jupiter have one that's so powerful that it'll just kill you if you go close enough to it it'll just irradiate you to death you know so like it's definitely a big operative force uh, and like the magnetic poles I remember that was always one apocalyptic uh, you oh, know, yeah, thing the people poles worry would about. switch and uh-huh. we'd all fly off into space or something. Like, uh, yeah, 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 or like all of our technology would fail, like all our satellites would crash no, or something like yeah, that. Like, uh-huh, you know, so right. there, I mean, you know, just like wireless, like radio, like radio waves, like all this stuff is kind of like magical and it is unseen. You know, you can't see yeah. your Wi-Fi signal. So like, uh, no. you know, and this is all relatively new. I mean, uh, in the late 19th century and. So it's, a, it's yes. rather understandable that... Yeah, another thing that they were... I mean, like, a- magnetism is related to, like, the idea of animal magnetism, which, like, mm. you know, I feel like, pe- like you know, it was, like, lit- like uh, I feel like now it has a connotation, like, animal magnetism has, like, some kind of connotation of, like, be- like sexuality or something, like, you know, like... Yeah, you, it makes me think of, like, guess, mindset or something. Yeah, but actually the whole idea of animal magnetism is just, like, a magnetism that animals have, you know, like, mm, that, okay. like, biological entities can exert a power of magnetism like and that's related to like the idea of hypnotism you know which i guess also like has like catalepsy and stuff like to say that there isn't like a sexual dimension to like some of that stuff like would be wrong but like uh 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 you know um but like uh but like uh yeah like obviously that has like a relevance to like uh you know uh, intelligence interests uh you know the idea of hypnotism and mind control is something that has always been and actually just to take it in like an even trippier territory i'm thinking about how like the those principles of magnetism uh, have even like they both become 
I mean, they're endemic to like a lot of our, you know, technology in the 20th century, but also we're given certain like sexualized nicknames. Like if you ever noticed, like, you know, the idea of like a male and a female plug or outlet yeah, mm-hmm. is like Real. inherently sexual in a way, uh, in a very blatant way. Um, and yeah, the idea of like electrical currents and stuff, uh, like a life force and all that, uh, all that kind of jazz is, uh, yeah. still, it's kind of, you kind of can see it pop up in a lot of places. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, well the whole idea of like the different, you know, the male and the female on the plug or like the, all, yeah, the or the plus like and yeah. minus on a battery. Exactly. Right. Like the, yeah. And you know, you know even, Baphomet, even like, you know, you know discourse both, about, uh, yeah. like discourse about, you know, relationships is like, Oh, opposites attract all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, true, uh, it all true. lines yeah, up. Opposite yeah. Attract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I guess that trial is a contrast to Mumler because he was acquitted. I guess one of the big points of contrast is that, he disowned everything like instantly maybe it would have gotten better if not but they were they seem to have had it out for uh spiritualism was super hard uh, yeah he went he went yeah. full bakaran basically yes um yeah. yeah uh this is uh one contemporary person uh gustave le bon uh, mm-hmm. He wrote a ch- uh, chapter, uh, wrote a book called uh, "Psychologie du Socialisme," <laughs> uh, like uh, you know, and uh, he talked about the famous trial of the spirit photographs is highly instructive on this matter. The photographer B had admitted to the court that all the photographs of ghosts he had delivered to his naive clients had been obtained by f- photographing prepared dummies. This argument may seem categorical. It did not shake the believer's faith. Despite the confessions of the deceitful photographer, despite the production of the dummies he had used as models in the courtroom, the spiritualist clients energetically maintained that they had perfectly recognized the features of deceased relatives in the photographs. This wonderful obstinacy of faith is highly instructive and offers a good understanding of the power of belief. Mm, yeah, I mean, they trusted uh, the plan. Know, they trusted the plan. They trusted the plan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They trusted the plan. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of, like, the parallels uh, to, like, the, the ghostly cue. Well, it is the same. It is. It's like, the when same prophecy sort of fails. spectral media. It's when prophecy yeah. fails, like, in general, but it's also, cue is the same because it, or, you know, very similar, and it has a ghostly component because, He's a very first spectral of all, figure. as we mentioned, it has a mediumistic component because Q yep. is like this sort of channel as well. But mm-hmm. he himself, yeah, he's he's a ghost because like, you know, he's and he always communicates through like these anonymous spectral media of like, like the 8chan is his know, Ouija right? board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. And yeah. And there's always rebuses and ciphers, you know, riddles are always involved, you know, the mm-hmm. same thing of like man is the ultimate you know the connection between the riddles and the games and the a lot of numerology kind of shit trust the plan you know the storm is coming yeah uh the storm electricity magnetism Ooh, yeah Yeah, many parallels many parallels Um, you know and i mean definitely demonstrates the power of belief i would say yes it definitely does um yeah i saw like some meme uh today on twitter that was like 
you know, that guy, like, knocking over, like, a tiny domino that then knocks over, like, a, a colossal domino, and, like, the uh-huh. little domino was labeled, like, low-tax bands anime from something-awful forms, and the big domino was labeled, like, people storm the Capitol and someone dies uh, in an attempt <laughs> to, like, you know, because they believe Donald Trump is the messiah or whatever, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, I think you can uh, probably trace it back to the something-awful yeah, forums. Um, um, that's, yeah, well, that's what uh, that was uh, uh, suggesting, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, but the, that yeah. that stuff's still very with us. Like we haven't been able to debunk the power of faith yet. No, we haven't, and it's something that's interesting because there is like uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I feel like this is kind of like a phenomenological or like Merleau-Pontyan idea. Another French person, uh, you know, Merleau-Ponty is like a philosopher that I, I really admire. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. like you know, and definitely my favorite of the phenomenologists. Uh, but he has this thing that like there is the the certainty is always the background of doubt. Uh, mm. In order to doubt something, you first have what he calls like perceptual faith, where you okay. have this kind of like implicit belief in like what you're seeing. You know, yes. uh, there's a there's a good quote uh, by him. Uh, let me see if I, I can dig it up here. Uh, that uh, I think uh, he says. Um, you know, uh, it is said that to cover one's eyes so as to not see a danger is not to believe in the things, to believe only in the private world. But this is rather to believe that what is for us is absolutely, that the world we have succeeded in seeing as without danger is without danger. It is therefore the greatest degree of belief that our vision goes to the things themselves. Um, so he, yeah, like basically saying that there's this sort of, uh, you know, when we close our eyes, like, you know, we're not believing in what uh, we see and like we're retreating into a private world. But really, mm-hmm. this is a belief like it's a belief. It, it represents a belief in the correspondence between what we see and what reality is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what we, uh, you know, uh, he calls it, you know, the perceptual faith is it's uh, like a, a pre-rational kind of conviction. It's the like, you know, we see the things themselves. The world is what we see. That's what he says, at least in translation, in his uh, visible, visible and invisible. Uh, okay, invisible, okay. Visible and et invisible, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, which is like his unfinished work, which is very interesting. And, and his well, uh, phenomenology perception is also very good, but yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. is he is he saying, uh, does he go on to basically argue that we ought to not trust uh, our sensory perceptions or have this like ontological faith or rather that we like need or that we it's inevitable we ought to be aware of it instead of like pretending that well yeah i think it's more inevitable that like his whole thing is about like you know his whole project is like really an unfinished project to like uh that uh, to describe like uh an ontology maybe or to describe like the way that things like uh things are perhaps like based on phenomena which like you know based on a phenomenology which you know could be traced like to Husserl like I think is probably his biggest influence uh Mm -hmm. and uh you know the idea is uh, like something that I feel like I've raised before like the sort of connection between uh what uh you know our perceptions and the way that we kind of uh project things and there's sort of a communication that happens uh, between like the the world and uh, the perception of the person, one of his uh, like uh, I think uh, richest ideas is the idea of like the the chiasm, what he calls it, which is uh, like an exchange between 
the perceiving and the perceived or uh, the circle of the visible and the seeing. Um, I'll see if I can get uh, up uh, 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 invisible and uh, et, or visible et invisible mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, quote from some of those uh, those parts. But uh, the sort of relationship between the projection of from like within towards like the world, you know, it's like this idea that uh, in phenomenology that like consciousness is always consciousness of something. You know, there isn't like this sort of several subject like we are like uh, in the world, like connected to it. And our being is like part of this sort of verticality out of like this sort of web or network like of our perceptions. And like there's a relation like it's about, I guess you could say it's a deconstruction of this binary between like subject and world that a lot of the time Um, operates. Um, Or uh, our I, I guess to I don't know tell me if this is off base but to to quote Don Henley like uh want somebody you know show me how to tell the dancer from the dance uh yeah you could kind of <laughs> say that I mean that's an interesting uh idea like itself I guess uh that's I feel like more about the difference between like the performance and like the performer that's also like an ontological uh question but like uh, <laughs> it is it, it, it is perhaps uh, in some way like different uh yeah one of many on like, desperado um but, yeah, yeah. But, yes uh for sure yes it just jumped out um, but, uh, yeah but okay, okay. Uh, um, yeah but i mean merlo ponte does talk a lot about like dancing and performance and music like as a way to sort of express this like uh the you know like uh, the habitus of uh dancers and and things like that um uh, I'll see if I can find like any actually relevant quote there. I mean, I know I was already looking for for one, but maybe I'll see if I can find uh, another because uh, I do have like pretty uh, thorough uh, notes on him. Uh, but yeah, let me see if I can uh, dig up. Well, I'll dig up what I was gonna dig up before uh, first of all because I feel like yeah, that's go- uh, primarily <laughs> uh, relevant. Uh, this is like a uh, an interesting quote here. So uh, the cleavage and what regards the essential is not for itself for the other subject object it is more exactly that between someone who goes unto the world and who from the exterior seems to remain in his own dream chiasm by which what announces itself to me as appearing uh sorry as being appears in the eyes of others to be only states of consciousness but like the chiasm of the eyes the optical chiasm you know like uh in our eyes like uh behind our our brain uh, mm-hmm. or like behind our eyes connecting to the brain uh, this one is also what makes us belong to the same world a world which is not projective but forms its unity across incompossibilities such as that of my world and the world of the other by reason of this mediation through reversal the chiasm there is sim- not simply a for oneself for the other antithesis there is being as containing all that first as sensible being and then as being without restriction chiasm instead of the for the other that means that there is not only a me-other rivalry, but a co-functioning. We function as one unique body. Mm. Uh, he goes on, yeah. Uh, the chasm okay. is not a me-other exchange. It is also exchange between me and the world, between the phenomenal body and the objective body, between the perceiving and the perceived. What begins as a thing ends as consciousness of the thing. What begins as a state of consciousness ends as a thing. One cannot account for this double chiasm by the cut of the for itself and the cut of the in itself. A relation to being is needed that would form itself within being. 
this at bottom is what Sasha was looking for. But since for him there is no interior except for me, except me, and every other is exteriority, being for him remains intact after this decompression that occurs in it. It remains pure positivity, object, and the four itself participates in it only through a sort of folly. Um, you know, there's a little critique of Sartre there, but I think oh, the, the key okay. part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah um, but yeah, so I think the it, key part is that you know, existentialist. Uh, yeah, he's not not an existentialist. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, he's definitely like a, a phenomenologist. Uh, you know, he's into okay. the phenomenology. And we're all we're all woven in some kind of like uh, phenomenological tapestry. Yeah, you could say in that. Like, you know, it, it sounds uh, like that's what he's gesturing. Yeah, there's an exchange bit. between the phenomenal body and the objective body, between you and the world, between the perceiving and the perceived, right? What begins yeah. a thing ends as a conscious of a thing, what begins as a state of conscious ends as a thing. So there's like it goes back and forth. There's this idea of exchange, which I think is interesting and really relates to I think he's like a probably the the modern philosopher you know there might be certain things that cancel him or whatever uh i don't know really of any but uh you know uh it's all very abstract maybe you could say so that maybe is a uh, grounds for taking issue with him but i i like his thought because i think he's a modern philosopher who reminds me the most strongly of like uh certain like pre-modern islamic philosophers like ibn al you know i think mm, that they okay. have kind of similar uh ontological uh concepts uh well it it does i mean just for my uh my not uh super well-read uh you know observation is that you know it sounds like it would comport to some extent with a kind of like everything is a part of allah or god you know everything is part of the same tapestry of creation and life etc you know like like this this distinction between that we put between subject and object or between uh between one another with ourselves and like the natural world all of these things are actually much more kind of like a cybernetically networked in like a very deep way that we almost aren't even fully aware of there's a thing you know uh i mean this is not necessarily in the uh idea of uh chiasm itself but i definitely think that uh you know well to say everything is part of a law i don't necessarily think that like you know the like this chair isn't a law you know that would be like wrong the chair that i'm sitting in currently you know i'm gesturing <laughs> to it uh you know this is an example of like this weird relationship where like i'm acting as if you're in this room but like uh the chair oh. that i'm currently sitting in is not a law you know that of course is not true uh sure. but you know a law like you know is the only thing that really exists you know so like uh the like a lot in a way reveals himself through like creation so the world mm-hmm. in a way it, and we can only access a lot through the world that isn't identical with him you know we can okay. only know a lot like through his creation which so you could say in a way like they're very the similar world. to hmm. what we're talking about with so the you screen. could say like the yeah the world is full of reflections of a law yeah, exactly. The world is, a, I think, like a screen for Allah, you know, that he acts through, uh, mm. you know, uh, that is one way of, of conceiving it. But, you know, of course, like, uh, I'll look for Allah for any faults in, in my reasoning. But that's what, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the idea of chasm, but I think that a lot of, uh, you know, Merleau-Ponty's ideas, uh, you know, including that one, have like a certain compatibility and are rich in, in, in a similar way and, and, and deal with similar sort of themes and definitely they address themselves to similar problems seems like a dream now it was so long ago the moon burned so bright and the time went so slow and i swore that i loved her and gave her a ring 
Did you have one more quote you wanted to read? I did. Uh, during our break just now, I found, you know, I was digging around through uh, Merleau-Ponty, and I found something that I think uh, you'll like. Um, you know, again, I was trying to pick out like a good uh, choice quote to kind of sum up uh, what we had talked about uh, beforehand. But the thing with Merleau-Ponty is that it's all like, especially uh, visible and invisible. It's like all one long, like rambling thought. Like when you're reading one of these books, like, and you're trying to highlight like a key idea, you always mm-hmm. like end up highlighting the entire book. I feel like because it's just like yeah, everything yeah. blows into another. Yeah, but uh, I did manage to get a selection that I think uh, speaks to uh, what we had kind of. Uh, discussed uh earlier um Mm -hmm. it's kind of a a discussion of proust uh but it gets uh especially uh at the end of what i'll read uh he makes a a statement that i I think uh he'll uh find interesting uh so he says uh and you know there's interesting stuff throughout uh uh, as well like uh you'll see the sort of magical uh resonances and the connections to what we've talked about with sphere photography uh anyway so he says we touch here the most difficult point that is, the bond between the flesh and the idea, between the visible and the interior armature, which it manifests and which it conceals. No one has gone further than Proust in fixing the relations between the visible and the invisible, in describing an idea that is not the contrary of the sensible, that is its lining and its depth. For what he says of musical ideas, he says of all cultural beings, such that the princess of Cleves and René, and also of the essence of love, which the little phrase from uh, Swan's Way not mm. only makes present to Swan or, you know, remembrances of times past in general, uh, but communicable to all who hear it, even though it is unbeknown to themselves, and even though later they do not know how to recognize it in the lives they only witness. He says it in general of many other notions which are, like music itself, without equivalence. The notions of light, of sound, of relief, of physical voluptuousness, which are the rich possessions with which our inward domain is diversified and adorned. Literature, music, the passions, but also the experience of the visible world are, no less than is the science of Le Vessier and Empire, the exploration of an invisible and the disclosure of a universe of ideas. The difference is simply that this invisible, these ideas, unlike those of that science, cannot be detached from the sensible appearances and be erected in a second positivity. The musical idea, the literary idea, the dialectic of love, and also the articulations of the light, the modes of exhibition of sound and of touch, speak to us, have their logic, their coherence, their points of intersection, their concordances, and here also the appearances are the disguise of unknown quote-unquote forces and quote-unquote laws. But it is as though the secrecy wherein they lie, and once the literary expression draws them, were their proper mode of existence. 
for these truths are not only hidden like a physical reality which we have not been able to discover, invisible in fact, but which we will one day be able to see facing us, which others, better situated, could already see, provided the screen that masks it is lifted. Here, on the contrary, there is no vision without the screen. The ideas we are speaking of would not be better known to us if we had no body and no sensibility. It is then that they would be inaccessible to us. The little phrase, the notion of the light, are not exhausted by their manifestations any more than is an idea of the intelligence. They could not be given to us as ideas except in a carnal experience. It is not only that we would find in that carnal experience the occasion to think them, it is that they owe their authority, their fascinating indestructible power, precisely to the fact that they are in transparency behind the sensible, or in its heart. Every time we want to get at it, immediately, or lay hands on it, or circumscribe it, or see it unveiled, we do in fact feel that the attempt is misconceived, that it retreats in the measure that we approach. The explication does not give us the idea itself, it is but a second version of it, a more manageable derivative. That's something that I feel all the time when I'm trying to articulate something in this podcast, but anyway. Uh, so uh, Swan can, of course, close in the little phrase between the marks of musical notation, ascribe the withdrawn and chilly tenderness that makes up its essence or its sense to the narrow range of the five notes that compose it and to the constant recurrence of two of them. While he is thinking of these signs and this sense, he no longer has the little phrase itself. He has only bare values substituted for the mysterious entity that he had perceived for the convenience of his understanding. Thus it is essential to this sort of ideas that they be veiled with shadows, appear under a disguise. They give us the assurance that the great, unpenetrated, and discouraging night of our soul, quote, uh, is not empty, it is not, quote-unquote, nothingness, but these entities, these domains, these worlds that line it, people it, and whose presence it feels like the presence of someone in the dark, have been acquired only through its commerce with the visible, to which they remain attached, as the secret blackness of milk, which Valere spoke, is accessible only through its whiteness. The idea of light or the musical idea doubles up the lights and sounds from beneath. It is their other side or their depth. Their carnal texture presents to us what is absent from all flesh. It is a furrow that traces itself out magically under our eyes without a tracer. A certain hollow, a certain interior, a certain absence, a negativity that is not nothing, being limited very precisely to these five notes between which it is intuited, to that family of sensibles we call lights. We do not see, do not hear the ideas, or and not even with the mind's eye or with the third ear, and yet they are there behind the sounds or between them, behind the lights or between them, recognizable through their always special, always unique manner of entrenching themselves behind them, perfectly distinct from one another, unequal among themselves in value and in significance. With the first vision, the first contact, the first pleasure, there is initiation. That is, not the positing of a content, but the opening of a dimension that can never again be closed, the establishment of a level in terms of which every other experience will henceforth be situated. The idea is this level, this dimension. It is therefore not a de facto invisible, like an object hidden behind another, not an absolute invisible, which would have nothing to do with the visible. Rather, it is the invisible of this world, that which inhabits this world, sustains it, renders it visible, its own and interior possibility, the being, capital B, of this being, lowercase b. At the moment, one says light. At that moment that the musicians reach the little phrase, there is no lacuna in me. What I live is as substantial, as explicit, as positive thought could be, even more so. A positive thought is what it is, but precisely is only what it is and accordingly cannot hold us. Already the mind's volubility takes it elsewhere. 
We do not possess the musical or sensible ideas precisely because they are negativity or absence circumscribed. They possess us. Uh, this is the key part. The performer mm-hmm. is no longer producing or reproducing the sonata. He feels himself, and the others feel him to be at service of the sonata. The sonata sings through him or cries out so suddenly that he must dash on his bow to follow it. And these open vortexes in the sonorous world finally form one soul vortex in which the ideas fit in with one another. Uh, so, you know, that is basically uh, the Don Henley uh, connection uh, mm, there. Uh, dance yeah, in the but, dance uh, right there, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm, uh, but, uh, or another one for the Eagles. Um, yeah, for the Eagles. But, yeah, yeah right. uh, I think you can also <laughs> see a lot of resonances in this with uh, the rest of what we said in terms of uh, the relationship. I mean, what we said throughout the podcast, I think, in terms yeah, of the relationship. Yeah, yeah, no, in yeah. general. I the, uh, the, hiddenness yeah. and uh, visibility and in this episode in particular. Um, you know, uh, he talks elsewhere about how you know there's a kind of vision where uh, in a way our vision sort of uh, falls upon things you know it doesn't unveil them but in fact veils them uh, in and in so doing creates this sort of sense of unveiling and it, it unveils them through veiling uh, which I think is uh, very relevant to, to what we're talking about here but uh, yeah anyway I thought that that uh, you know I looked up his uh, sort of musical comments and I found that one that was more or less dancer in the dance so I thought yep. uh, it would be yep. good to uh, <laughs> to read there yeah mm-hmm. um, but yeah wow. uh, that would be uh, a good uh, bridge to like some of the other like theoretical stuff around like spectrality which I think would be good to talk about but I did also want to read like from some of this uh, other essay that is uh, uh, excerpted in in the spectralities reader um which is from uh, it's an introduction to a book by jeffrey sconce called haunted media um and uh, i think this is an interesting piece because it connects kind of uh you know i guess the reason why it's uh, collected in this in this volume is that it kind of builds uh from the uh fear of photography of the 19th century into the sort of advent of of tv uh he talks about uh, some of the incidents of sort of early haunting and then the sort of uh personification or the uh supernatural qualities of television uh Mm -hmm. so he writes uh amid daily newspaper coverage of national politics foreign policy and local crimes readers of the new york times in the early 50s encountered three bizarre and seemingly unrelated stories concerning the then emerging medium of television on the night of 20th October, 1952, Frank Walsh went to bed in his Long Island home while his wife and children watched an episode of Abbott and Cassell on the television set downstairs. Disturbed by the volume of the program and unable to sleep, Walsh got out of bed, found his handgun, and started down the staircase. Halfway down the steps, Walsh paused, aimed, and at the words of the t- and in the words of the Times reporter, stilled the television with one shot from his 38 caliber revolver. After a few moments of stunned silence, Walsh's wife called the police to report the incident, but as a paper observed, since there is no law against shooting television sets, the only charge against Mr. Walsh would be a substantial one from the repairman. Walsh was able to avoid even this charge, however, by converting his newfound status as a television assassin. They should give him back his gun. His work has barely started, quipped columnist Jack Gould, into an opportunity to appear on a quiz show. As a contestant on Striker Wit Rich, Walsh won a new television set. Wow. On 30th June 1953, Richard Gaugan, an unemployed shipping clerk who would later describe himself to police as a professional justice man, rushed past guards at CBS Studios in New York with two newly purchased kitchen knives. Gaugan made his way onto a set where a rehearsal was taking place for the series City Hospital. In a scuffle with actors, technicians, and security personnel, Galgan managed to stab a CBS cameraman and smash a pitcher of water over an actor's head before finally being apprehended. 
Galgan confessed at the police station that he had purchased the knives for the specific purpose of killing someone connected with television. Later, he told the police that he hated television because its shows were scandalous. More importantly, he also felt he was being personally slandered by the programs. Whoa. Finally, on 11 December 1953, readers of the Times met a family from Long Island that had been forced to punish their TV set for scaring the children. As Jerome Travers and his three children were watching Ding Dong School one day, the face of an unknown woman mysteriously appeared on the screen and would not vanish, even when the set was turned off and unplugged. The bulky set, which previously had behaved itself, according to the Times, had its face turned to the wall for gross misbehavior and frightening little children. The haunted television finally gave up the ghost, so to speak, a day later, but not before scores of newspapermen, magazine writers, and TV engineers had a chance to observe the phenomenon. Visitors to the Travers home also included Francie Lane, a singer from the episode of the Maury Amsterdam show that preceded Ding Dong School on the day of the initial haunting. Mm -hmm. Lane was thought to be the face behind the image frozen on the screen, and her agent apparently thought it would make for good publicity to have the singer meet her ghostly cathode ray double. Something less than newsworthy. These odd incidents from the early days of television are nevertheless of interest as diverse examples of a common convention representing television and other electronic media. Each of these stories draws on a larger cultural mythology about the living quality of such technologies, suggesting in this case that television is alive, living, real, not dead, even if it sometimes serves as a medium of the dead. The living quality of television transcends the historically limited and now almost non-existent practice of direct live broadcasting to prescribe a larger sense to describe a larger sense that all television programming is discursively live by virtue of its instantaneous transmission and reception. Central as well to the initial fascination with telegraphy, telephony, and wireless, such liveness is at present the foundation for a whole new series of vivid fantasies involving cyberspace and virtual reality. Mm. At times, this sense of liveness can imply that electronic media technologies are animate and perhaps even sentient. Although various parties involved in the peculiar episode detailed above may have not actually believed their TV sets were alive, the reporters who needed to make sense of these assignments certainly wrote as if their readers would make, or at least understand, such an assumption. These stories are either amusing or alarming to the extent that the reader shares in a larger cultural understanding that television and its electronic cousins are, paradoxically, completely familiar in their seemingly fundamental uncanniness, so much so that we really question this often fantastic convention through which we conceptualize and engage these media. Perhaps initially the product of Frank Walsh's insomnia, for example, shooting the TV set has become over the years a familiar gesture in the nation's hyperbolic loathing of television as an intruding house guest. Although it would be difficult to document exactly how many people really do shoot their sets in a given year, it is easy to gauge the symbolic importance of this act by how frequently it appears in films, books, and even in television programming itself. Mm. In this scenario, the television figures as an obnoxious, deceitful, cloying, banal, and or boring visitor within the home who must be dispatched with extreme prejudice. Prejudice. Mm. The intrusive, mm -hmm. imperious, and above all else living presence of television is such that it cannot simply be turned off or unplugged. It must be violently murdered. The Times headline for Walsh's ballistic tirade reinforced the pseudo-sentience of the doom set, justifying the act as obviously self-defense, a sentiment <laughs> that echoes in contemporary bumper stickers that implore surrounding drivers to kill your television. <laughs> Owners of personal computers make similar animating investments in their media, of course, but here the interactivity and intimacy of the computer more often transform the machine into a friend and confident, uh, I don't know about that, mm. albeit one with which we occasionally have a stormy relationship. Um... Yeah, uh, he goes on yeah, talking about the yeah the, haunting quality of the stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. yes, uh, I think like that also is uh, shows kind of how these uh, ghostly like things resurge 
you know, uh, with the, the development of, of new, uh, with new developments in this sort of, uh, fr- uh, teleology from photography to, uh, telecommunications. Um, yeah, 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 he that's writes, really... uh, yeah, he writes, uh, later on, uh, um, that I will argue that electronic presence, seemingly an essential property of telecommunications media, is in fact a variable social construct, its forms, potentials, and perceived dangers having changed significantly across media history. This project then is a cultural history of electronic presence, an interpretive examination of the fields of electronic fiction socially generated around telecommunications technologies. I am interested here in the overall persistence of such expressive speculation over the past century and a half, as well as the socio-historical specificity of individual articulations of media presence from telegraphy to virtual reality. In exploring the development of such media metaphysics, I wish to analyze the expressive functions of electronic presence, both as a historical phenomenon and the foundation for our own era's continuing fascination with telecommunications media. Why is it after 50 years of ele- 150 years of electronic communication, we still so often ascribe mystical powers to what are ultimately very material technologies. Well, I feel like we have uh, answered this question uh, many times, but mm-hmm. you know that uh, these two things like go hand in hand. But I, I yeah, imagine yeah, you not so a easy conclusion. To, yeah, uh, to separate them. right. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, That's yes. uh, uh, you know that that is in, that does jump out at me as as kind of significant and interesting that. The, the trope of shooting your television or the television is like an annoying intruder into your mm-hmm. house versus a computer, which is your friend. And mm-hmm. um, it, uh, it reminds me a lot of like the very, um, let's go on a slight tangent here for a second, but the pretty, uh, I guess, legendary, for me at least, uh, 2017 blog post by uh, Crypto Cuttlefish entitled Yes Kids, Cookie Monster is a PSYOP. And uh, uh, basically, okay. you know, it, it, it starts <laughs> yeah. out. I'll just read a tiny bit from it because it's like that uh, that thing of like, oh, the computer's your friend. Um, yeah. It, it starts out rather legendarily. Sesame Street was created by veteran officers of the U.S. Army Psychological Warfare Office with the goal of blunting the force of social justice radicalism in the United States by promoting the liberal ideology that oppression not uh, that oppression is not a structural economic injustice, but a matter of poor individual character and and or bad social skills. In a 1970 state-directed project to determine how humans established cathexis with military hardware, computer engineer Alan Kay leveraged the graphical capabilities of highly advanced prototype personal computers to display animations of one of Sesame Street's most popular characters, Cookie Monster, because he felt this would help children see personal computers not as technological artifacts derived from Air Force weapons, but as friendly and even, quote, magical helpers in their lives. Kay, who developed the park uh, Alto computer and small talk programming language concurrently with Xerox funding the creation of Sesame Street is very clear about this in his early history of small talk. Building the Sesame Street characters into the design of the Alto's user interface was an evolutionary step in ARPA's 20 year study on quote com- human computer symbiosis. Um, <clears throat> and um, you know, this uh, talks about how aerial combat was the initial use case for the cyborg symbiosis. And in the 50s and early 60s, this research was directed towards neuromuscular interfaces with the hardware, humans being literally wired into the computers. By the late 60s, early 70s, computer displays and pointing devices derived from Air Force radar scopes had become responsive enough that it was possible to use the computer as an interface to display traditional works of art, books, music, animation. This is where it became possible for the user to establish 
establish deeper cathexis with the hardware across the full range of human emotions. Control feedback loops became visual endocrine, not mechanical muscular. This was the conceptual leap that Engelbart and Kay pulled off at SRI and Park. It took Steve Jobs another few years to figure out how to commodify that cathexis, and then the personal computer revolution was underway. Mm, the last thing yeah. I'll do here is uh, computing devices and software still mostly, quote, work for people because of how they establish and amplify cathexis with the devices themselves or with images and texts that might represent real people or fictional people or video game characters or whatever. It's important not to mystify this or, well, maybe. Uh, it's important not to <laughs> mystify this or think there's some essential spirit zeitgeist in the network. If, quote, the internet, social software, feels oppressive or fashy, that's because of how the software software interfaces and moderation systems were designed. This is, again, based half uh, really banal needs of the marketplace stuff and half on really deep and particular assumptions about human selfhood and what it means to be a human interacting with other humans and how the behavioral standards of online communities have been cultivated. You can still find pockets of liberated space online, though in my opinion they were more common 20 years ago. Kay saw computers as the recursive application of processes that hide their internal state and behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, last thing I read, uh, these are the quote objects of object oriented programming. Small talk is a recursion on the computer itself, a nested hierarchy of objects that each simulate little computers. Kay's inspiration for this came from the study of cellular biology. Cells hide the entropy of their uh, metabolic processes from each other and can quote communicate by passing proteins, hormones through a membrane. Equilibrium is maintained in an organism by complex interdependent systems of feedback between cells, even though the cells themselves remain physically distinct from one another. K-designed operating systems were logically distinct, quote, objects communicated through passing, quote, messages and elicited a hormonal response, cathexis, user-friendliness, in users through the display and manipulation of culturally meaningful symbols. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, yeah, I think there's some similar lines going on there. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, especially in, like, the aspect of sort of hiddenness. And you can trace these, like, whole, uh, these kind of ideas of, like, the cell or the sort of transmission of different nodes, like, that he talks about, like, two, like, earlier technologies. And in a way, like, the spirit uh, photography that we talked about is kind of like a you know a precognition or a forecast of the way that these like virtu- like the sort of way that the spirits can communicate through the means of photography or these sort of tele is a is a sort of uh, you know precognition of these telecommunications modes like they're the mm-hmm. first telecommunicators uh, in this mm-hmm. uh, same like intro that uh, I'm reading I think this guy points out uh, some like re- things relevant to to that as well like. Uh, he sort of highlights like three recurring fictions uh, that are central to the development of communica- telecommunications technology. Uh, mm-hmm. He says that these familiar stories appear in new incarnations with every with the advent of each new medium. Uh, the first fiction uh, is that these media enable an uncanny form of disembodiment, allowing the communicating subject the ability, real or imagined, to leave the body and transport his or her consciousness to a distant destination. Mm. So once again, getting into kind of the substance of Star Trek a bit here, uh, yep. you know, this is the beam me up type thing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, yeah, in more extreme versions of this technological fantasy, the entire body can be electronically dissolved and teleported through telecommunications technology. Yeah, right? something that we've never oh. realized, but something that has been a consistent fantasy. You know, and that really is the idea of 
sphere of photography that these beings, you know, disembodied beings can, you know, manifest like through this uh, in some way. Uh, and that this is like a you interesting. Know, so it's almost it's a like, reversal of like instead of uh, creating this technological platform that like spirits can come on into, it's like using the technology to turn yourself into a spirit. Yeah, and then, so like, same live idea. Well, basically that, yeah, since human beings fundamentally are spirits, and the spirits themselves, you know, they have, like, we can get into this maybe when we talk about Derrida, but they have, like, a body, you know, they have a spectral ectoplasmic kind of body, you know, that's yeah. what appears, you know, it's not like they are just, like, a mind or something, like, they have some kind of phantasmic form, you know, that, like, it is, like, some kind of bodily spirit like thing you know like, and it's uh, it, well and uh, it's very obviously an echo uh if we're if we're you know giving them the benefit of doubt and like believing this or whatever it's like it's literally a physical echo i mean the the photo that's purported to be abraham lincoln looks uh unmistakably like abraham lincoln it's like pretty yeah. unambiguous and so the, the by well, nature the form it takes is determined by its corporeal like physical material yes. imprint on the earth right. which kind of reminds me of like in our soviet parapsychology episode talking about the energetic imprints that are left by people and how that one scientist was developing a device to like uh kind of scan for it you know yeah um like and like, like that, it be you a, know, I don't know yeah like uh that uh sorry lost my uh train of thought like uh, a little bit now as i'm, I'm sorry. speaking um, we'll look at it further, um, but uh, yeah, I uh, yeah I think that uh, there's uh, you know uh, something. Oh yeah, like uh, the whole thing, like with the body, like that is the idea that like if your body dies, it's kind of in contrast to yeah, this is what I'm gonna say. It's kind of in contrast to the older sort of idea of the sort of judgment day or the revival after death, which would be bodily. This yeah. is like uh, different in that like there's sort of and this is kind of why spiritualism was uh, one of the reasons why spiritualism was controversial uh, with uh, traditional authorities is that like the idea that there's sort of like a spirit essence that is what survives. And that's what comes back, like, or, you know, that's what survives after death and is still active in some way after death or, like, isn't, you know, uh, it doesn't follow your standard necessary uh, or your necessarily standard religious vision, depending on what it is, of the afterlife, you know. Uh, it, sure. Uh, like, the spirit essence. So the idea that you could teleport basically is based on the idea that, you know, uh, on Star Trek, you know, it's like their patterns, their patterns can be, like, encoded in the computer and then reconstituted, you know, uh -huh. so you can spiritualize and then reconstitute, uh, you know, because the essence is in this pattern that can actually be digitized. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, he talks about two more interesting fictions that I think are, are worth uh, mentioning. Uh, the second one, which, you know, uh, kind of relates to what you, you've mentioned, um, is uh, the idea of a uh, sovereign electronic world. Uh, in this scenario, oh the boy. subject emerges into an enclosed and self-sustaining electronic elsewhere that is in some way generated or at least accessed by a particular form of electronic telecommunications technology. Awestruck projections about the future splendor of virtual reality are perhaps the most familiar examples of this fiction today, but this fantasy of utopian electronic space also flourished as far back as the 19th century. Um, yeah, so of course, mm. you know, this virtual reality. Uh, then he says, and this is like really, uh, this is like launder my head uh, type oh, stuff. God. Uh, Here we go. Uh, third common fiction based on the transmutable powers of electricity involves the anthropomorphizing of media technology. 
perhaps most visible in the contemporary fascination with androids and cyborgs. It's funny because mm-hmm. this obviously wasn't written like very recently, you know, probably relatively recently, but like not, you know, like that fascination really continues. Uh, this oh, particular yeah. fiction is also more than a century old, and as stories from the time suggest, figured centrally in representing television during its earliest years, you know. Uh, that's very launder my head, you know. Yeah, like yeah, TV, exactly. Uh, Normalizing uh, yeah. uh, the Twilight yes. Zone, doing a lot of work there, maybe. Um, and Star yeah. Trek, obviously. Uh, yeah. Well, wait, well, remind me of the Twilight Zone episode where people are TVs or something? Uh, oh, I don't know if, like, people are TVs, but I feel like, I, I don't know, maybe... Uh, uh, robots, ex- yeah. The, yeah, yeah just like works, like spooky definitely. kind of... I, I was just thinking of any kind of TV that had any kind of spooky sci-fi like futuristic kind of element yeah. that popularized a lot of those things and you know the early years yeah. of television mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's but definitely, definitely something that's recurred throughout the, yeah that stands out as an older like one i mean even like you know robots in general uh but i guess like the is like hg wells i uh, kind of got into it a cyborg yeah. and a robot uh those are yeah know, fritz lang's things, metropolis but, yeah. of course like very influential yeah. movie that basically has like True. a a COINTELPRO robot sent in to like derail the labor yeah. movement <laughs> like, i mean really like androids and cyborgs like you know depending on your definition of cyborg like, you could say like we're all you know the way that, like a lot of uh, cyborg theorists do now say like we're all cyborgs because like you know we wear glasses or whatever you know like that's uh, incorporating technology into your body uh, yeah i think elon must like to say that you're already that a cyborg uh, yeah, yeah because you have a self with, you have a smartphone uh, yeah uh i'm comfortable with wearing glasses as like a level of cyber cyborg but uh, i i for whatever reason i just don't like the idea of becoming a nanite cloud so i'm gonna draw the line uh, <laughs> at like any kind of like invasive microchip or whatever for some reason i don't yeah, know obviously it's, it's meaningless and just like reactionary to think there's a difference between having like a microchip in your brain and uh having glasses but uh for whatever reason i just do so i don't know i don't know what that's all about but i guess just some irrational uh reflex yeah. that i have but anyway yeah um, yeah. yeah you need to come um, up with a slur for like you know if you deny the agency of like people that become nanite clouds yeah, fleshy you know, like, f- fleshy yeah. uh you know like this fucking fleshies. fleshy chauvinist uh, uh yeah exactly uh yeah, yeah like, oh god uh, yeah well, you, you could c- cyberphobic um yeah cyberphobic um also maybe think about like the borg in star trek again going back to them and yeah how, the borg like, well, they the are b- cyber Borgs, Borgish they are literally in the in the chicken factory, basically. Yeah, they are in the chicken factory. Yeah, for sure. Um, at least they're like a scary uh, vision. I mean, I guess like the I mean, we can definitely we should do like a sus Star Trek episode. Definitely. But like, I guess the Federation is really like a, a paradise of like American capitalist individuality, despite maybe occasional protests. So of course, the Borg are the mm-hmm. ultimate horror because and this is like the whole idea i mean yeah i wonder that about the, the, the sub, mm, i yeah, wonder about the subliminal like, message of the borg even though the borg did they not did they come about before the end of the cold war no the borg did not um yeah you're but, right so uh, i think it yeah. was it was less about uh painting like communist countries in the space and future as like a horrifying borg collective and more about i don't know just like dabbling in a little bit of like william gibson Ooky spooky uh cyberpunk yeah. like well uh, i remember like the whole idea like uh ever since like the whole like uh generation or like the, the the development of like the liberal individual sovereign subject like i remember reading some old like orientalist like travel writers saying like about like uh you know the ottomans or something saying like you know they are so uh they 
don't have any individuality, you know, they consider themselves to be Islami, which means of one mind or whatever, you know, uh, like, which of <laughs> okay. course is not what Islam means or whatever, yeah. you know, like, uh, but like, uh, you know, like portraying Muslims as being, I mean, that's obviously an old thing, like portraying Muslims as being like, you know, a... Uh, yeah, like like individuated collectivity of like mindless like ants or something. You know, Meccan but... candidates basically, like yeah, Medinan um, candidates. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, no, no, like yeah. basically, um, yeah. It's just like, did you know that like Islam is Arabic for submission? Uh, yeah, well, it's like, yeah. No, uh, like you know, it doesn't mean yeah. Well, that's usually yeah. like saying it like, doesn't mean peace. You know, we're gonna submit. We're gonna submit you or something. Yeah, like, exactly. Like we're gonna. It means like we all have to submit that's to what it Muslims. Means. Like not like, like submission. Yeah, yeah. Well, Muslim <laughs> means like a submitter. So yeah, I yeah. guess like you know, it's a god. But uh-huh. yeah, I guess it just means like we're gonna submit like the the west or you know western yes. civilization whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, neither here nor there. Resistance is futile, like, Kufar. But, yeah, there is yeah exactly yeah 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 um but like that you know that's the same sort of uh the sort of same anxiety the same like uh you know subsumption of the individual which is interesting because like you know there is like a in the islamic tradition there is like a sort of desirability to like the disappearance of the eye you know which again kind of resonates with some of what uh we were reading from before from merleau-ponty the idea of like the subject object uh dissolving you know like uh that's fana like the ultimate annihilation yeah well that was also you know but that was also tremendously nightmare for it was also tremendously popular by the acid tripping like trust fund freaks that uh did silicon valley in the 60s counterculture like Mm -hmm. don't you just like get rid of you know like uh blow out your ego like get rid of the Mm -hmm. eye Get rid of the eye in yeah. your head, you know? Overthrow yeah, the dictator common, in your brain. I guess it's a common, like, uh, mystical uh, theme in a way. Although, like, you know, I think that there's... I mean, this is a total tangent. We could go with, like, two things. So I think that, like, uh, you know, the idea of, like, the self or, like, sort of interiority uh, is also, like, has a certain importance and, like, the whole idea of, like, the, the sort of sociological aspect of, like, there is no, like, self, you know? It's all, like, uh, uh-huh. whatever, like... Uh, I don't, like, I'm not, like, super on board with that because I think, like, there's also, like, sort of a complex theory of the self, like, in, in pre-modernity, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's, like, the carnal self or nafs or, you know, and there's also, like, the, uh, but there's, it's, it's complicated, but, you know, there's, uh, there's maybe, I we agree. can go into it at a different time, but, yeah, like, uh, anyway, so, um, sure. but, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll pull uh, back on whole, course. Uh, here, the huh? whole Borg <laughs> thing is an old, is an old, uh, fear, but, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, yeah, so uh, after that point, uh, you know, he talks uh, about, like, just to, to sum up, uh, he says, like, a, a good quote that I think, like, uh, uh, this uh, str- is a strange uh, virtual terrain. Um, uh, wait, maybe I should read a little bit before that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, uh, the most fantastic accounts of such presence, the liveness of radio and television, you know, a vast invisible audience has occupied the shared electronically generated world of national programming. Uh, and the most fantastic accounts of this, uh, both then and today, have gone so far as to grant this electronic shadow world a strangely tangible autonomy, where, quote-unquote, reality itself has in some mysterious manner been eroded by its electronically circulated analog. A little bit true. This is the strange virtual terrain that sustains both the high theories of hyper-reality and the similar yet more prosaic notion of television land. 
uh, <laughs> it is an elect. You know, you can kind of see how like this is like not like a hundred percent contemporary writing because like, yeah. this doesn't really deal with the internet. Uh, it is an electronic maelstrom where a ceaselessly mediated and ultimately phantom public sphere exists, interwoven with the eternally unfolding diegesis of a thousand worlds in television's ever-expanding universe of syndication. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the playful and infinitely reversible binaries of television or at least television theory, the Brady Bunch and CNN are equally real slash unreal, each sealed in the common electronic space of television land's unending metadiegetic procession. So mm. I think that, like, you know, you need to do a little bit of work to extrapolate that to, like, you know, today where we to actually the internet. Like, have the, you know, the, the, yeah, the development of the internet. Since but, the I mean, it does kind of line up but, a little know, bit. Yeah, uh, You know, you think about up. everything, yeah, everything being flattened to, like, a Facebook news feed or, like, a Twitter TL yes. where it's, like, you have, like, statements from, like, the president and, like, people making, like, cum jokes and, like, disinformation and CNN. Yes. And everything. Yeah, and, it, the, you know, it actually lines up more. Like, I just yeah. feel like, you know, you have to do, like, a little you know you have to think like slightly but like not too much like you know it even it's like in the way like he the writer is kind of describing this as like a fiction or something that you know uh the idea of television land that you know people the way people think about tv but that thought that idea of television land is now what we actually do live in <laughs> like yeah, that yeah. is like you know been realized uh but mm-hmm. so it has another level to this whole like real unreal uh binary but i think that is interesting in terms of i mean i feel like you know i was listening uh to what is uh, at the time of this recording like our most recently like aired uh, episode of uh the q a uh, mm-hmm. where we discuss like the question of magic being real and using this sort of example of like a movie or a play to talk about this i think that that uh you know, definitely has, like, a, a sort of relevance to this idea of, like, real and unreal, and, like, in our mm-hmm. uh, hypertrophized, like, media sphere that we exist in now, you know, I definitely think that it is true that this electronic quote-unquote maelstrom has, uh, you know, uh, led to, uh, you know, uh, the, the derealization of everything else, or, uh, yeah. you know... Yeah, I mean, our uh, world has kind of been invaded by specters. Yeah, yes, like, or it's it been is, invaded yeah. by specters and ghosts haunted, of all kinds. Haunted, yeah, yes, extremely haunted. haunted. Yes, and and uh, to a point where I think now almost like the majority of society that's plugged into these things, which, you know, is at least a huge chunk, uh, it's kind of being experienced across the board. No matter yeah, where yeah. you're kind of coming from, like there there's an inability, there's more instability than ever in terms of like any kind of common shared sense of reality and a yeah. kind of verifiability. So like the thing that I guess people were really excited about that uh you know photography and uh cinema would be able to capture the real and thus like demystify it has actually been turned on its head and now it's being used to like flood our world with like phantoms yeah for sure and also to yeah definitely like the uh the stability of like uh, the real or of objectivity has definitely uh you know f- faltered uh mm-hmm. in the, the current like mediatized universe and you know i'm thinking like about these stories of people friends like killing their tvs or feeling that their tvs are personally slandering them or something it's interesting mm-hmm. because now our devices like do listen to them and you can't really make them stop you know yeah. like our do listen to us you can't really make them stop you know like we That's so true. joke about like oh fbi agent listening to this or whatever but like uh-huh. we always have that ghostly presence like with us of like this mm-hmm. you know this woman or whatever imprinted on our tv it, i mean you know this is a the most like uh trite uh overused analogy ever but it is kind of like in 1984 where 
they have the TVs they can't turn off, you know, like, uh, yes. that's just yeah. a way to maybe create the bridge between TV and now, you know, of course, it's also just like what exists currently, but, uh, you know, they have the telescreens where you can always slightly turn the TV down, but, like, you can turn it very low and, like, you know, very dark, but you can't fully turn it off because it's always spying on you. That's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, uh, the version of a quote-unquote TV that we have now, uh, where, yes. you know, there's and, constant uh, surveillance, uh, which is, you know, this, uh, yeah, very, very ghostly uh, surveil, literally, like the, the veil upon it, like the the, the, sh- the bedsheet ghost uh, that's always there, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, the poltergeist in yeah. the TV, like that, that movie, yes. right? You know? Yeah, poltergeist, yes. Uh, Came out of a TV. Yeah. Right, and it, uh, yeah, actually, the there's ring. a whole bunch of yeah, in the ring as well. Yeah, there's a there's a, yeah. a bunch of movies where the TV kind of a uh, becomes a portal. Uh, in you fact, know, in I think in the novelization of the ring, um, the a spoiler for the novelization of the ring, but I think oh, that okay. in the in the novel is like or not the novelization, the novel that it's based on. Sorry, okay. I'm it's a novelization, but it's yeah. actually based on this uh, Japanese novel. Uh, the whole idea is that like the ghost girl uh, who like causes the like in seven days you die thing yeah it's uh like a a virus kind of like she was infected with smallpox because she was sexually assaulted um and like the her death combined with the smallpox virus like created this ghostly disease basically and the tape is like a virus and uh in the in the novel they the protagonist thinks that what he has to do is like exhume the body and give it a proper burial and then that happens and uh you know he does that and then seven days or whatever pass and he doesn't die so he's like oh it worked but then uh his partner who he or you know someone who's investigating with uh who he copied the tape for before he really knew you know that it actually was dangerous does die Uh, and then he realizes that actually the way this works is that you have to show that like the only way to get yourself out of it is to copy the tape and show it to someone else uh wow. so like so this haunt thing has just... the characteristics of a virus that comes out of the tv you know uh so very uh that's very know. spooky kind of a a, a sinister yes. twist on pay it forward yes or you know but like, like contagion situation of the uh yeah. the media virus that uh we're we're facing are is you have to get uh, the only way though it, i don't know i'm just thinking about it right now i i don't know if um if uh if if spreading on the mimetic virus uh helps you helps you exercise it from yourself if anything it deepens the connection yeah uh with the mm-hmm. ideas um so in that sense it's kind of more insidious and dangerous even than the ring girl yeah. who kills you um, <laughs> yes because uh, kind of, at least yeah. he gets to escape like at least he kind of gets away if he gives it to somebody else like you know both with real viruses and with like mimetic viruses like it, it i feel like there's no there's no way out i guess uh maybe you uh can burn off the fever and become inoculated if you're lucky mm-hmm. right yeah. develop a natural immunity um mm-hmm. 
you know, like like uh, like when I used to watch Alex Jones, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, like yeah, fever, right, yeah. And then I got acquired immunity. Yeah, uh, it was good. It well, was you were vaccinated by taking super male vitality, and you're right. Uh, you're right. And, you know, what, and, brain, what and else? De- whatever. Decalcifying else you my uh, uh, yeah, yeah, taking um, Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, why why can't I think of that right now? The iodine supplement that he has. Um. um yeah. What was it? called yeah why, uh, why can't i think yeah. of it right now um oh, uh, super, oh survival oh, shield survival uh, shield no. x2 survival shield yeah, x2 yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> it's like that uh, you know it did, did allow me to get my my pineal gland to get decalcified um yeah that's true cool. mm-hmm. um right you know, so buy iodine yeah. salt folks it's cheaper than a survival shield x2 yeah. Um, Anyways, uh, that, you know, they've taken the iodine out of salt, according to you. I haven't actually yeah. verified that. No, no, told lo- me, but and I, it's uh, all yeah. the fancy salts too. Like it's the good salt, like sea salt and stuff that you want to buy that looks good. Mm. Like it, it'll say like this does not supply iodine and essential nutrient. So, no. Uh, no. You have to like specifically uh, buy the kind of ugly store brand salt that does have iodine in it. They're trying to psyop yeah. us into avoiding iodine. And I don't like don't. the fancy sea salt though because it's not like ground up enough. You know, I have to like do it manually. It's like this big chunky salt. Like I bet you, know, you have specific. Uh, I bet you have very specific uh, picadillos when it comes to the salt that you use. Because uh, you well, are... I don't mind it, but I just like prefer. Okay, it, salt doesn't necessarily bother me. Uh, different. No, no. I mean, uh, you're the you're the number salt, one salt but... aficionado. It's the only comment yeah, oh, uh, sure. I've ever seen yeah, you put I on do your love food. Salt. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I've only put, well, pepper. I, I do sometimes put okay, pepper right. on it. Uh, yeah, uh, like uh, Cajun uh, spicing sometimes. Oh, like okay, uh, you know, okay. but still like very granular. You know, definitely not viscous uh, in any way. Uh, <laughs> that's those big you know, crack rocks uh, of salt. You don't want that. No, I mean, well, yeah. Uh, if there were such a thing as viscous salt, I probably wouldn't want that. Uh, but, uh, as far as I know. listen to a story of a ghost. I don't the truly strange can see. It's about the ghost of Tech Nine. You heard a strange and heard the name that came in to disturb the game. Occurred the lane, preferred the word insane, so the murder came. A lot of people they heard of the Tekanina. And I always said that it wasn't a better singer. But it's so many that act like they never seen that independent pro and never step into that arena. But I'm a guap stacker and sought after. But too many my catalog are lost chapters. And this is telling Nui that I'm a boss laughter. Cause they don't know the story behind the chop master. Who they give the credit to got a lot faster. They say they pop in rose and think I pop shasta. Looking through me like I'm a ghost of shot past Like when you ever see my name in the top rappers. I Cause I be doing the most My people try to boast About the 20 year independent But the prison another label up on revolt F-E. They never play OG Take a Nina like I pay no fee I ain't tripping to take and pay OD But I dropped it in 09 And nine years later Another artist dropped a record called KOD yeah. Look over the flow spit I'm not on the goat list If that ain't ghost shit What is it? Bullshit. And then she know that I'm so fit To go with the dopest And know they for sure get the business I am kingly But I'm treated like I'm some kind of genie Rubbing a lamp and I'm hella dreamy People that stream me Cause of Carol Baloo and the little teenies They banging the record but never seen me You heard the handle Climbing you never heard the jam though Flowing I got the words to ramble 
I murder family, I'm money like a bird in a bando. Mythical, so they burn the candle. When they talk about this person, I'm a sick earthling. Heard I was a devil and I'm the disperser. 92 rapping backwards, I get working a decade later. I hear some nolly ish your future. It's like I don't exist sometimes. Thinking, how is it possible to miss someone that I put together to make a hit? Dumb Couldn't keep up the cadence with the sticks. Drum I'm down with the stable and got the sick. Come by. My imagery made them all wanna split from uh, red headed when it wasn't the shit. Sunlight. Now it's popping your can and nigga get some shine. I've seen it with my own eyes. Do you want to talk about Adorno for a minute? Because he, yeah. he cited in some of this, and I think he yeah. had he had some thoughts about specters and ghosts, and actually about the occult in general that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know if he yeah, pops up in other essays uh, as well, or if you you probably know more than I do of what his line in. Uh, mm-hmm. to, yeah. Did he talk I mean, about spirit photography particularly, or just about the spectrality? I don't think that he did because at that time it wasn't like a thing. And his whole thing of thesis, thesis against occultism was like based on that this is like a current sort of thing uh, that uh, you know he was uh, objecting to. Um, so which he was uh, he wrote the he wrote his theses against occultism in like the late forties, right? Yeah, exactly. It was like way before the New Agey revival really kicked off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess some uh, people have seen that as a, a bit prophetic, or but also like wondering, yeah, like, maybe what mm-hmm. like I guess maybe he was still looking at it in the aftermath of World War Two, and I guess he he firmly believed that occultism had a kind of definitively right wing character. Yeah, uh, and like you know, look how it inspired Hitler and the Nazis and all that stuff. And so uh, he really he he had some uh, fiery things to say about uh, occultists and like their relationship. Um, I did, I just had I I captioned one quote here that was mentioned in the intro to the, the spectrality uh, collection. But uh, Adorno mm-hmm. wrote that the occultist draws the ultimate conclusion from the fetish character of commodities menacingly objectified labor assails him on all sides from demonically grimacing objects what has been forgotten in a world congealed into products the fact that it has been produced by men is split off and misremembered as a being in itself added to that of the objects and equivalent to them because objects have frozen in the cold light of reason lost their illusory animation the social quality that now animates them is given an independent existence both natural and supernatural a thing among things. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's basically like kind of just a restatement of the idea of the fetish character of he's saying that occultism is like a form of animism or like fetishism. Basically, uh, you know, uh, the fetish character of commodities that Marx like, describes is yeah. like you know, for one, his knowledge of occultism like doesn't seem to be uh, very like robust. So, mm-hmm. Like, also, like, the whole idea of, you know, not that I, like, am down with, like, worshipping idols or, like, rocks or anything of that variety, <laughs> but, like, I think that his understand like, you know, I, I've always had a problem with the, you know, uh, idea of, I mean, I think that there's obviously, like, you know, uh, uh, validity in a lot of the discussion around commodity fetishism and Marxist formulation of it, but at the same time, I've always had a problem with that because, like, it's just sort of, like, 
you know, instead of describing it for what it is, which is like a feature of something that is like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a very uh, like salient feature of like industrial capitalism uh, mm-hmm. and like, you know, the mechanical reproduction in like 19th century uh, European societies. It's like, oh, well, this is like a primitive thing, like from like all those other, you know, this is like is uh, alienating it, you know, or uh, making it uh, visible in some way or marking it by associating it with like, you know, some caricature of like savagery or whatever, like Ooga Booga type stuff. Uh, so I, you know, I've always had a problem yeah, with he... that like aspect of the idea of, of fetishism in general, and uh, you know, the fetishism of of commodities. You know, yeah, for, like, for uh, sure. Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, I guess like you know the. I, I could pick some bones with like at least the way his arguments are like summarized uh, in this thing in, in this intro here you know he I, I guess they're saying after that quote like rather than remembering in good Marxist fashion that the laborer is the one who produces the object and its added value the occultist takes the object for an autonomous agent enhancing its status as a fetish while seeking to deny it historical processes and the fact that it is people who oppress people are obfuscated Adorno suggests by fortune tellers psychic researchers and quote astrological hocus pocus all uh, shots fired um all working the transfer agency and responsibility to an external ungraspable non-material force um and you know but it also compares him to freud who who i guess had you know who had this very like dismissive attitude towards uh ghosts and spiritualism and stuff and really didn't want anything to do with it because he thought it would like rub off negatively on like the field of psychoanalysis and stuff he says uh Mm -hmm. So he says Adorno's rather hyperbolic rant against occult practices that were, by the time of the writing in the 1940s, already rather marginal, but which are nevertheless likened to fascism and seem to wield a totalitarian power, leaves little room for understanding the reasons why people invest themselves in those beliefs. He goes as far as to dismiss the fear of death he like freud recognizes might underlie quote the woeful idiocy they practice as itself crass the elided material diagnosis of the collective catastrophe uh society is heading towards is seen to invalidate any personal longing for hope or comfort as a childish indulgence generating more than a whiff of the same elitism pervading freud's discussion of the uncanny if mediums convey quote nothing more significant than the dead grandmother's greetings and the prophecy of an imminent journey this can have no possible value for Adorno. It merely marks those who take them seriously as, quote, dunces, who, instead of challenging the way capitalism deprives their existence of worth, revel in its, quote, everyday dreariness. And uh, the last thing here, which is where I kind of depart from a little bit, is... uh, it says, while the occult is uh, condemned for mixing the conditional and the unconditional, Adorno praises the traditional religions for stressing the, quote, inseparability of the spiritual and the physical. Soul and body should not be thought apart from each other, as the supposed freedom of the soul or mind serves merely to conceal the unfreedom of the laboring body. I, I can kind of agree with that, but yeah, only by... Yeah, part of it that I actually do agree with. Yeah, uh, I actually do agree with yeah. that part, uh, but then... Yes. Only by thinking the spiritual is part of the physical, subsumed under it, does it become amenable to materialist critique. As in Freud, then, it is not just the supposed existence of actual ghosts that Adorno derides, but also the figurative use of spirit from which the dangerous belief in the autonomous material reality of the ghost and the soul alike is seen to originate. 
quote, the doctrine of the existence of the spirit, the ultimate exaltation of bourgeois consciousness, bore teleologically within it the belief in spirits, its ultimate degradation. The only possible conclusion, drawn in Adorno's final sentence, is that there must not be any ghost or spirit, actual or metaphorical. Quote, no spirit exists. So, like, um, that, that seemed like a little bit like, wait, 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 no, you were on a good idea there, and then all of a sudden decides, like, um, all all discussion of spirits is sus. Like, no, like, uh, just yes, ban it all. Well, Get rid of it all. Yes, exactly. Well, this is like, um, you know, uh, yeah, this is interesting. And this kind of gets into to Derrida. Well, for one, yeah, I think that, uh, as I said, like uh, his idea of like what the I think he's talking about, like the petty bourgeois, like kind of like, you know, interest in astrology or whatever or yes. like you know uh this is like so in a way like uh i think like his uh discuss with this like has like a point although maybe he makes like a uh, more out of it than uh it is i also think that he uh, like a lot of these uh earlier and contemporary critical theorists like i think that his sweeping statements about uh, the great religions, uh, you know, uh, he says, the great religions have either, like Judaism after the ban on graven images, veiled the redemption of the dead in silence, or preached the resurrection of the flesh, you know, kind of mentioned the resurrection of the uh -huh. flesh. Uh, they take the inseparability of the spiritual and the physical seriously. So that, to me, uh, you know, uh, for them, there was no intention, nothing spiritual that was not somehow founded in bodily perception or soft bodily fulfillment. For one, like, that's not true. Like, that mm -hmm. is, like, a huge, like, generalization to say that, I mean, I don't know about, I'm not as knowledgeable about Judaism, but I do know that there is, like, a mystical, uh, tenet, uh, you know, occurrence in, in Judaism. And Absolutely. As in Islam. And definitely, like, there is, for one, I mean, there's always, like, a tension between, like, you know, I think that Merleau-Ponty is very right about this, like, you know, in, in, for instance, in the passage that we read, where, like, uh, we experience everything, like, through the body, you know, we're embodied mm -hmm. beings, and, like, yeah. therefore, like, things of spirit, as we see in spirit photography, they're imagined, like, in bodily terms, however, yeah. like, you know, uh, there is, like, definitely, uh, certainly in, like, you know, the quote-unquote great religions, there are ideas of thinking about, like, uh, the non-body body. You know, what Derrida calls it is the sensuous non-sensuous, or the, you know, incorporeal corporeality, uh, mm -hmm. which is definitely, you know, something that, uh, you know, is kind of an, a negation of uh, our experience to imagine, like, elsewhere, uh, you know, uh, something else. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that... Uh, like, uh, yeah, I mean, Adorno even says, uh, only in the metaphor of the body can the concept of the pure spirit be grasped at all, and is at the same time canceled. In their reification, the spirits are already negated. Uh, but, mm. you know, I think that that is not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, bad, or like, you know, uh, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily, that type of negation, uh, you know, some negations can be like uh productive in some way or like, ideas of negation or cancellation uh yeah. no, you know not cancellation in terms of you know cancel gold the, the ultimate cancel yeah. culture but <laughs> you know uh canceling the the idea of the body uh to conceive of of the the disembodied but uh you know i yeah i think that yeah. uh, that type of of thinking is you know uh not like it's in some way natural or is in part uh is part of like our our embodied state like uh you know these two things uh converge in some way that we imagine spirit by virtue of being in the body and i think that, i don't think that that's something yeah. that religions like haven't done like definitely he's right about the resurrection of the flesh and that's a distinction yeah that's in a that's christian idea as well too. yeah yeah mm -hmm. right uh 
But, uh, yeah, this is an interesting thing that he says at the end uh, that includes uh, the what you read there. Um, mm-hmm. He says, uh, if the philosophic investment of spirit with existence is determinable, then finally, they sense, the occultists, any scattered piece of existence must be justifiable as a particular spirit. The doctrine of the existence of the spirit, the ultimate exaltation of bourgeois consciousness, consequently bore teleologically within it the belief in spirits, its ultimate degradation. The shift to existence, always positive and justifying the world, implies at the same time the thesis of the positivity of mind, pinning it down, transposing the absolute into appearance. Whether the whole objective world as product is to be spirit, or a particular thing, a particular spirit, ceases to matter, and the world spirit becomes a supreme spirit, the guardian angel of the established despiritualized order. On this the occultists live. Their mysticism is the enfant terrible of the mystical moment in Hegel. They take speculation to the point of fraudulent bankruptcy. In mm. passing off a determinate being as mind, they put objectified mind to the test of existence, which must prove negative. No spirit exists. So, uh, yeah, I think this is interesting because this is going against, like, the idea of uh, the world spirit in, in Hegel, you know, the Geist. And mm-hmm. I think that... This is something that Derrida also points out when he talks about the sort of uh, essential contamination, the way he's called phrases, this is essential contamination of spirit with specter. And I think that that's mm. kind of the same idea that Adorno is getting at earlier, where he says that, you know, in order to imagine one, like, you know, the, the body, you can't really get outside the body. You know, there's mm-hmm. no way, uh, which I think is true, that you can't, you know, uh, be a disembodied being where we exist in our bodies. You know, we can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know yeah i mean obviously that's an example of yeah this is an example of being able to imagine like otherwise but i think is a part of our body existence and like that's a natural uh instinct that i think we have which is uh part of this existence that we have mm-hmm. but uh you know so i think that what derrida pointed out was that uh which i think maybe adorno doesn't quite get onto is that Marx really stumbles, like in the whole idea of like commodity fetishism and the idea his trying, you know, his aversion to spirits, and I think in Adorno's yeah. as well. Like they like are infected with that whole contamination. I think that mm-hmm. may be part of the whole reason for like this, you know, uh, inveighing against occultism, even though like at the time, you know, uh, it was wrote like at length against uh, one of the most based uh, figures who still uh, enjoys a, a following uh, online among uh, fools is Max Stirner. Max Stirner, uh, you yeah. Know, the king of spooks. <laughs> the king of spooks, uh, yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was very much into this like language of ghosts, you know. Uh, and Marx actually kind of criticized him because, uh, yeah, I'll try to find, like, uh, Inspectors of Marx, like, his key quote, but he kind of talked about how, like, he basically reduced his whole idea of, like, the ego, like, uh, through this proliferation of ghosts that he's seeing everywhere, like, he actually <laughs> himself becomes the ultimate ghost because he believes in, like, you know, this uh, idea of, like, the sovereign ego or whatever, you know, egoism, which wow. is, like, really the ultimate spook at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, he's, so, so he becomes like, a spook. Yes, uh, yes, I'll try to find, because uh, I know that, that uh, 
that Derrida quotes it uh, in uh, Spectres, okay. where um, he talks about these uh, these spooks. But yeah, spook, uh, literally using the word spook. Yeah, Marx wrote uh, the Leipzig Council, St. Max. Yeah, he calls him St. Max, <laughs> uh, which is great. I love it. Um, yeah, uh, definitely uh, he owns him uh, pretty accurately. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I'll try to find like the exact uh the exact quote. Yeah. It's just interesting that like uh and you know, Sterner is somebody who I feel like I was mostly made aware of putzing around like Chan boards and maybe like Twitter, particularly in like the early twenty yeah. tens. He had kind of a moment of just like Sterner yeah, fanboys being like everything's a spook. On Twitter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, that very classic see, meme, like, meme like, drawing of him. Authoritarian, yeah, 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 it's so stupid. Like, well, wasn't so that actually the? It's a, it was. It's the it ultimate was, meme ideology of like, yeah. dumb, like you know, belief that has no, like you know, no one actually subscribes to except for like teens. Like, it, it's just like, of course, it's just about like, it's the ultimate like bourgeois thing because it's just about like me, me, me. Like I'm the only thing yeah. that's real. Everything else is a spook. Like, and I'm an atheist. You know, like okay, it's great. like being an atheist uh, and cap, putting a little like continental yeah. European. Glass loss on it to make it seem yeah. fancier uh-huh right uh it's interesting because marx's critique of of sterner uh yeah talks a little bit about um the his his Hegelian, uh genealogy um so uh marx says now therefore the question arises what is a spirit other than the ego whereas the original question was what is a spirit owing to its creation of nothing other than itself with this saint max jumps to the next transformation uh, and then Derrida jumps in and says, In its first and simple impurity, the history of ghosts unfolds in several moments. Even before one watches from the comfort of one's chair what is called the theory of specters, the procession of ghosts of concepts that would be these concepts of ghosts. So you're getting this Derrida, you know, this is like, you know, hardcore Derrida. The procession uh-huh. of the ghosts of concepts that would be the concepts of ghosts. Okay. It is important to underscore that this theory betrays its origin, namely Father Hegel. It betrays and it betrays. It allows one to see its ancestral line and it is unworthy of that ancestor. It announce, it denounces that ancestor. Stirner's Hegelian genealogy would be a decline of the sun. Cerner descends from Hegel. He is haunted by the author of Phenomenology of Spirit, and he cannot stand it. He spits out living ghosts like a whale suffering from a digestion. In other words, he does not comprehend Hegel as well as another one of the descendants. Guess who? You know, meaning Marx. Yep, so you can Marx. see it's Der- Derrida, like classic French, like you know, writing style where uh, you know. It is not the. Um, it is not only the A of B, but it is also yeah, the B of A. You know, yeah, like exactly. that's like basically yeah, yeah, that yeah, formula yeah, just plug it in everywhere. Yeah, the latter just as persecuted by the shadow of this great father who comes back every night, you know, referring to Marx, ready also to betray him or to avenge him, it is sometimes the same thing, is busy <laughs> giving a lesson here in Hegelianism to Brother Stirner. Stirner always slips into Hegelian language. He slides his words into the long, familiar, orthodox Hegelian phrases, uh, quoting Marx there. But mm-hmm. this unworthy heir has not understood the essentials of the will and testament. He has not read very well the phenomenology of spirit, which is his inspiration and with which he wants to give to us in a Christian version, uh, Mark says, St. Max intends to give us a phenomenology of the Christian spirit. What has he not understood? What is the essential? On the subject of the becoming specter of the spirit, he has not seen that, for Hegel, the world was not only spiritualized, but despiritualized. 
a thesis that the author of the German ideology seems to approve. This despiritualization is quite correctly recognized by Hegel, we read. Hegel managed to relate to the two movements, but our saintly dialectician, who was ignorant of the historical method, has not learned how to do so. What is more, if he had been a better historian, he would have ended up breaking with Hegel. For the reproach against Stirner is both that he does not understand Hegel and, this is not necessarily a contradiction, that he is too Hegelian in his genealogy of the ghost. This bad brother sees himself accused at once of being the too filial son and a bad son of Hegel. A docile son listens to his father. He mimes him but does not understand him at all, implies Marx, who would have liked to do not the opposite, that is, become another bad son, but something else by interrupting filiation. Easier said than done. In any case, the work of Stirner remains null and void. But even if he had given us this phenomenology, which after Hegel was moreover superfluous, he would all the same have given us nothing. Ooh. Uh, yeah, completely owned. Uh, uh, rap air yes. horns going off. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, devastated. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. BTFO yeah. Sterner. Yes. Go back to uh, yeah. go back to poll. Definitely um, read Saint Max if you just want to see your Sterner own. <laughs> I mean, it should really be just like uh, paste it and reply to like everything uh, that uh, you know uh, anyone who posts about Sterner and his baseness uh, ever again. But this uh, subsequent part is is also I think uh, uh, pretty relevant. He says uh, uh, Derrida that is says uh, mm-hmm. the apparently declared imperialism that inspires Sterner's critique always leads it back in fact to a law of art- alterity. As always, empiricism has a vocation for heterology. One recognizes actual experience by its encounter with some other. Now, for having overlooked this heterodetermination of the Christian spirit, Stirner is under a spell. He hallucinates. He phantomalizes. One might say he fantasizes the spirit. In truth, he is haunted by the Hegelian frequency. He is inhabited only by that. The only alterity of which he is capable is the being other of the professional chair, a being other of the thoughts of the Berlin professor. The metamorphosis <laughs> of Sternerian man and world are universal history incarnated in the shadow of Hegel, incorporated into the body of Hegelian philosophy, metamorphosed and incorporated into ghosts, which only apparently are a being other of the thoughts of the Berlin professor. They are only that. They are apparently that. In the phenomenology of spirit, in this Bible or this book, Hegel transfigures the individual into consciousness and the world into object. Life and history are thus transfigured in their very diversity into relations of consciousness to the object. It is still a matter of truth, and it is a phenomenalization, uh, sorry, a phenomenologization of the truth Mm -hmm. as truth of consciousness that is here put into question. The history of the ghost remains a history of phantomalization, and the latter will indeed be a history of truth, a history of the becoming true of a fable, unless it is the reverse, a fabulation of truth, in any case, a history of ghosts. Uh, And this sentence, you know, is important, but a very uh, Deridian with a bunch of parentheses. The phenomenology, parentheses, of spirit describes, one, the relation of consciousness to the object as truth or as relation to the truth as mere object. Two, the relation of consciousness insofar as it is true, sorry, as it is the true to the object. Three, the true relation of consciousness with truth. This tripleness reflects the trinity. God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit provides mediation, thus passage and unity. It gives rise, by the same token, to the metamorphosis of the spiritual into the spectral. It is This is the very error of St. Max. One, therefore, has the feeling that, in the critique of Stirner in any case, Marx is out to get the specter above all, and not the Spirit. 
as if he still believed in some decontaminating purification in this regard, as if the ghost were not watching the spirit, as if it were not haunting the spirit, precisely from the threshold of spiritualization, as if iterability itself, which conditions both the idealization and the spiritualization of the idea, did not erase any critical assurance as to the discernment between these two concepts. But Marx insists on discerning. That is the price of the crinine of the critique. Crinine being the Greek, you know, the judgment, the separation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is like all very dense, very like Derrida and probably not <laughs> super uh, like uh, easily parsed uh, without the yeah. rest of the context about like the, the relationship between ghosts and iterability and uh, all the stuff about Hamlet or whatever in this. But uh, like the main thing is that like the, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, Marx is sort of acting out in his critique of St. Max, which, uh, you know, is uh, on point largely. Yeah. He is also kind of acting out his need to uh, decontaminate uh, the spirit or uh, to parse this difference between specter and spirit uh, that see. is uh, and very that's... difficult to deal with. And, I guess like yeah, Spectre whole... being the kind of metaphor, metaphoricized, uh, basically uh, like a conceptual, uh, like a, 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 a sort of despiritualized uh, concept. You know, when he says a Spectre is haunting Europe, he doesn't literally mean there's like a ghost being out there, like haunting Europe, obviously. Uh, he's mm-hmm. talking in a kind of like meta, an allegorical way right but you're saying but i guess is he he's saying that it's not so simple to disentangle the more like the hegelian idea of spirit uh from like this this sort of allegorical version of specter to to think that he's like liberated it and like drained out all the i don't know uh you know incorrect uh either you know uh, pseudo whatever um uh, all the you know the religiosity or the uh, uh, whatever it may be, it's not so easy to yeah. disentangle these things. In a way, yeah, I think that like the key thing in the specter for, uh, and I think that like what you're saying like uh, does in a way factor into this. The key thing about the specter um, for Derrida is that it's a paradoxical, of course, like everything in Derrida, paradox, both <laughs> and, uh, et cetera. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a paradoxical incorporation. It's the becoming okay. body, he says, a certain phenomenal and carnal form of the spirit. It becomes rather some quote-unquote thing that remains difficult to name, neither soul nor body, and both one and the other. For it is flesh and phenomenality that gave to the spirit its spectral apparition, but which disappear right away in the apparition, the very coming of the revenant, or the return of the specter, right? So uh, this is a whole thing in Derrida where, like, uh. Uh, the ghost <laughs> always is coming again, you know? Even if it's appearing for the first time, it's always coming back. And he talks about this in terms of... Uh, so you're saying, like, he, he's revenant. literally saying there ain't nothing new under the sun. Uh, yes, in a way, in a way. there ain't nothing new <laughs> under the sun. Yeah, you could say that, uh, okay. perhaps. I mean, there's a lot uh, there. Um, he connects it to like the whole idea of the sensu- non-sensuous sensuous, uh, uh, which is like mentioned in Capital, um, and that you know this uh, this is obviously paradoxical. Uh, so it's the same kind mm-hmm. of thing, and a lot of it has to do with Hamlet and like the visor effect and the ghost that is uh, watching without being seen. Uh, kind of relating to our ideas about uh, uh, spectrality. He talks, there's a good passage about uh, the sort of body of the the king. 
um, or the body of the father uh, and relating to Marx, I think. Let me see if mm-hmm. I can uh, dig up uh, uh, that part here. Uh, the bodyless body of money, the body of money is but a shadow, etc., etc. Hmm. Yeah, let's... Body uh, of money uh, is lots- but a shadow. Yeah, so I guess that's a quote, uh, you know, because the, yeah, the sort of spectral, uh, or I mean, I'm saying spectral, but, you know, like the uh, uh, the, commo- the commodity form or the sort of body of money, you know, yeah, like mm-hmm. I think that's what uh, he's uh, referring to. Uh, yeah, this is a good example. Um, so he's talking about uh, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, you know, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, Marx wrote. Um, so he's saying... Uh, uh, the uh, it would of course have been necessary to cite more examples of uh, anachrony in this uh, text uh, to prove like you know various points but what, to get around to what he's saying he's saying uh, the closest of the letter that is the spectral body that takes its place this time it is uh, a matter in effect of a parody of the specter itself the revolution begins itself to caricature the quote unquote red specter that the counter revolutionaries did everything to conjure away the Red Spectre was also the name of a revolutionary group. The supplementary fold that matters to us here is the one that regularly assures a reflexive return of a conjuration. Uh, those who inspire fear frighten themselves. They conjure the very spectre they represent. The conjuration is in mourning for itself and turns its own force against itself. Uh, and this has to do with like a lot of stuff around this text. Probably not like uh, super necessary uh, to mm-hmm. go into fully. But, uh, you know, one thing that he continues to come back to is, uh, you know, this uh, idea of, like, getting rid of the past, like, uh, in order to... Because otherwise, the revolution will just become, like, a parody of itself, you know, uh, commenting on, uh, the, you know, the return of, of Louis Bonaparte and everything. Mm. Uh, and uh, is trying to sort of uh, exercise uh, uh, this past, uh, or something that... Uh, that uh, um, Marx, uh, you know, really wants to do, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, of course, uh, that's a very uh, difficult uh, thing to do. He talks about how he wants to let the dead bury the dead, uh, but of course, that's something that you know can't actually really be done. Uh, Derrida yeah. theorizes that phrase, uh, you know, uh, extensively, but yeah, uh, I'm, sure uh, you know, I'm sure he yes, does. I'm sure he does. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Paradox. Yes. Difference and difference as well. Yeah. Yeah. On there, like the thing that really broke me, like when it comes to Derrida, like you know, I do think that there's a lot of good stuff in Derrida, and this is a good lecture. You know, uh, it's very like discursive, and it was like given as a speech originally, which uh, I think lends to some of its like uh, difficulty uh, Mm -hmm. and its density. But I would actually recommend it, and I, you know. But something that really broke me with him was when I like uh, reading his thing. I think uh, about I don't remember what it's called, but it's I think it might be called the gift. Uh, it might be the title. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, like uh, and it was just this long sentence where like about yeah uh, you know time and uh, the the nature of of the yeah given time is the name of the text. Sorry, okay. but anyway, so he's talking about the nature of the gift and temporality, which is one of his you know consistent themes, which of course you know factors and factors of Marx as well. Because, uh, you know, it's dealing with how ghosts are always untimely, you know, time is out of joint, etc. You Mm know, Uh, like, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously ghosts are the dead returned, etc. They're the last time is always a first time in paradox, uh, blah, blah. 
but uh in given time you know he's talking again about temporality and there's this one long sentence where he just uh you know ends up saying like you know the gift uh he makes this weird pun uh where it's like the gift and and like is a present or whatever you know and i'm just like give me a break like are you kidding me like you know uh it's like this long long sentence where like ultimately it comes down to like the you know like a, a really bad rap lyric like, like the gift is a present yeah like uh like you know, a like, manuel miranda like, the, the like present, slam yeah, poetry like yeah the you know the moment is a gift that's why they call it the present you know yeah, yeah exactly yeah. like that literally like uh Whoa. you know uh yeah but um you know there's still some good stuff in given time uh but yeah, and I definitely mm-hmm. do like Spectres and Marks. And, like, really what this text is about, for those listening who maybe haven't read it, like, this is about, like, uh, an attempt, you know, not, like, the be-all, end-all, you know, but it is, like, interesting as a uh, historical piece to read because this is about, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, someone who is, like, a very visible, like, left-wing, generally intellectual, you know, mm-hmm. trying to reckon with the fall of the Soviet Union, which is what a lot yeah. of this has to do with, the whole, like, fixation with ghosts and haunting and mourning, like, uh, you know, the subtitle of this book is, like, The New International, you know, it talks about, like, the work of Morning and the New International, so, uh... Yeah, in some this, ways it's more, this... it's more, like, uh, relevant than ever, the idea of, uh, communism being a specter, because we have, like, the, the, the sort of the ghost of the entire Eastern Bloc just yeah. float I mean, you know, it's like these people went almost through, like, an interdimensional shift into the kind of a brutal capitalist uh neoliberal world but like uh i don't know there's a whole a whole bunch of tangent i go off but continue i haven't read specters mark so uh, yeah well no it, I, I think that what you said actually like uh it, like uh again well almost uh because everything is both and in derrida it's kind of hard not to say something that would uh, somehow be like in some agreement <laughs> with what he says but okay. like uh you know uh, i think that like that is kind of in a way where he's going where like uh, the current work, uh, or, you know, what uh, lies ahead is in a way a continuation of, um, you know, this whole idea of, like, the specter. Like, that is in some way, like, a uh, prediction. Like, uh, something that he goes into a lot is how, like, by trying to exercise, like, he goes into the sort of paradox of conjuration a lot, you know, where he's talking mm-hmm. about how conjuration can mean, uh, I think especially in French, it can mean, uh, you know, to get, to exercise, but also to, like, conjure, you know, to summon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how a lot of the time the efforts to get rid of the ghost, just like in Pepper's Ghost Illusion, you know, the efforts to get rid of the ghost end up sort of creating the ghost. And mm-hmm. I think that this is something that he's getting, uh, you know, uh, sort of the paradox of the uh, the specter uh, kind of uh, coming back in this way after after the fact uh you know he he talks about this as being a deja vu or or whatever uh mm-hmm. i think is, is maybe uh, uh probably uses the actual term deja vu and uh he goes in on on fukuyama in fact i think that a lot of like the yeah uh, you know i think you can credit him with like a lot of the the pushback against fukuyama's end of history stuff vis-a-vis sure. like communism Mm-hmm. Uh, because well, yeah, he wrote this like, in '93, you know, right? So like very yeah. soon after that book came out and everything had yes. collapsed. Yeah. Yeah, and he really pushes back hard against the idea of the end of history and that, uh, you know, uh, the, like the eschatological themes of that, uh, the end of history, the end of Marxism, the end of philosophy, the ends of man, the last man, and so forth. And he says that uh, it was the same question already as final question. 
Many young people today, of the type readers, consumers of the Fukuyama, or the type Fukuyama himself, probably no longer sufficiently realize it. The eschatological themes of, you know, all these things, the end of history, etc., uh, mm-hmm. and so forth, were, in the 50s, that is, 40 years ago, our daily bread. We had this bread of apocalypse in our mouths naturally, already, just as naturally as that which I nicknamed after the fact, in 1980, the apocalyptic tone in philosophy. Uh, so he's talking about mm-hmm. how, like, this end of history has, uh, you know, been going on for a while. You know, we're mm-hmm. living after the end of history, and the, the you know, uh, definitely goes into the, the ghostliness uh, of that. You know, uh, but yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a lot, uh, a lot here um, mm-hmm. uh, that you could that you could talk about. You know, this is where the the famous uh, term ontology comes from. You know, hauntology. As yeah, hauntology. Of course, yeah. all Derrida things it's a pun because in French, uh, hauntology and ontology sound like kind of the same. Like uh. Uh, so, like <laughs> it's supposed to sound in speech, like you know, uh, very similar to ontology. You know, yeah, so yeah. you know, like so uh this is like the whole um Well it's kind of like know, it almost it, related. Know. Uh it's kind of like how in Eastern Germany or in just Ger- in Germany uh, in the last decade or two there's like a term ostalgia um or mm-hmm. ostalgia or something like that, which is a pun on Ost you know, Ostdeutschland, right. you know, East Germany and nostalgia, right. obviously. So the, the, any kind of nostalgia people have, uh, for the GDR, nostalgia. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that slightly, but you know, similar thing. And that is a kind of like a feature of like a hauntology of like a, a nostalgia for this like state that doesn't exist anymore. And this social order that doesn't exist anymore. That was uprooted. Yeah. A uh, hauntology, I guess, is like uh you know very uh hard concept to pin down but basically it really is something that's tied up with it's interesting because i think hauntology is actually a very relevant term to this because it is tied up with uh in his definition of it and there it is it is it is tied up with uh media and Mm -hmm. uh you know with temporality and with uh with media um and uh especially like with the spectral characteristic uh of media um and you know it's uh it's uh it's complicated but uh you know he talks about the end of history actually in this he says uh uh this is actually a good quote that is relatively clear as far as these things go Mm -hmm. repetition and first time uh that is perhaps the question of the event as question of the ghost what is a ghost what is the effectivity or the presence of a specter that is, of what seems to remain as ineffective, virtual, insubstantial as a simulacrum. Is there there, between the thing itself and a simulacrum, an opposition that holds up? Repetition and first time, but also repetition and last time, since the singularity of any first time makes of it also a last time. Each time it is the event itself, a first time is a last time. Altogether other, staging for the end of history. Let us call it a ontology. This logic of haunting would not merely be larger and more powerful than an ontology or a thinking of being, of the to be, assuming that it is a matter of being in the to be or not to be, but nothing is less certain. It would harbor within itself, but like circumscribed places or particular events, eschatology and teleology themselves. It would comprehend them, but incomprehensibly. How to comprehend, in fact, the discourse of the end or the discourse about the end? Can the extremity of the extreme ever be comprehended, and the opposition between to be and not to be? 
Hamlet already began with the expected return of the dead king. After the end of history, the spirit comes by coming back. It figures both a dead man who comes back and a ghost whose expected return repeats itself again and again. Uh, then, you know, he goes into Marx's love for Shakespeare and everything. Uh, mm. You know, he literally says... Uh, oh, Marx's love for Shakespeare is the next sentence, you know. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, anyways, I mean, uh, there, yeah. there's a lot going on there. Uh, there I, definitely there's is definitely, a lot going on. I'm getting like slightly triggered by the uh, the, the, both the and, overwhelming uh, uh, like post-structuralist Frenchness of it all, and just <laughs> yeah, like it's really a lot. It's is a thing much. is not a thing, and this yeah, is a thing, uh, but it is also not <laughs> a thing. And like, okay, good, yeah, great, I get exactly. it. Everything's yeah, tangled uh, and complicated. I get it. We can't decide yes, anything. No, for Better sure. just let Holy. the fucking techno capitalist super elites just take over the world because I guess we can't decide on what anything is. So um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, where's the. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, for sure. But, like, but I don't want to throw it all out, you know, impulsively. No, I wouldn't throw uh, it all out. I think that there is some good stuff in there. But like, again, yeah, like, you know, it's not something where you just like are like, this is the, uh, the be all end all or the not to be. Uh, uh, not to end all, you know, or whatever. <laughs> not uh, but, to end all well, beginning uh, yeah, not, again. Yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah, and, like, that is a thing with uh, Derrida. There is, like, that quality of him where I think you just need to not take him too seriously, you know? You just yeah. have to have... My personal take is that this is someone who's, like, kind of like a pun-based comedian who sometimes makes you think a little bit, you know? Fair enough, Not, like... You know, he's like the real George Carlin, you know, like he actually makes you think, you know, like uh, he's mostly a comedian, like whereas yeah. George Carlin doesn't actually make you think, like even though people say that, like or whatever, or what what is his name, the other guy, uh, who uh, always is complaining, uh, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Hicks, yeah. or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah. wow, you knew Bill exactly Hicks. what I was talking about, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, uh, of course. It's, yeah, it's kind of like that, but it actually can potentially make you think, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. But it makes you think where it doesn't do the thinking for you because, like, a lot of it is just, like, provocation and, like, yes. wordplay. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you know, there's not no value in it. Uh, and, I, and, you know, this did spark off, like, you know, insofar as, like, the spectral turn in the humanities, like, is mm. relevant to, you know... Uh, what we're talking about, the sort of spectrality of the current moment, then, like, this is definitely a super relevant text because this definitely did spur a lot of that and is a super, like, you know, uh, salient uh, piece. So, yeah, I would recommend it. And there is, like, some, you know, uh, interesting readings of Marx in here. Um, and, like, uh, I think that that is, is, is pretty valuable, you know, and some mm -hmm. lesser-known works, like his rebuttal to Sterner, his remarks on, on Louis Bonaparte and everything like that. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, yeah I, I, I am like interested that. in the engagements with some of these guys with uh, sort of uh, classic Marxism and Marx, like in the 90s and the 2000s, because uh, those were kind of the earliest attempts. I mean, it, even in the 80s, too, I'd be curious to see kind of like what they were saying, like before the Soviet Union, you know, collapsed, like, uh, you know, what uh, were what was their position on it? I mean, I know with all these like philosophers, whether it's like you know, Foucault or Sartre or Camus or whatever, like they all, uh, some of them, they were kind of all over the map to some extent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those I'm guys curious, are like, different. like, you know, yeah, that's uh, true. They were more, some of those guys were, yeah. were more Marxist, uh, or communist and some were like very not, uh, except like, like Foucault when he was like an edgy Maoist for a couple of years, but then, you know, uh, mm -hmm. sort of dropped it. Yeah. Uh, 
You know, and I wonder yes. if Derrida, I wonder if the CIA loved Derrida as much as they love Foucault. Uh, I'm not um, sure, I think but. That they, I mean, I don't know because I think that Foucault, it's, yeah, I mean, Foucault is interesting because he, his theories, I feel like, are perhaps a bit more, I almost want to say, like, they're. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Uh, Derrida is a bit more like literary, maybe, uh, and a bit more uh, airy, maybe mm-hmm. abstract in, in a lot of senses, and a bit more like uh, inside baseball with some of the philosophy. Whereas okay. like Foucault's stuff, you know, uh, I mean, Derrida's a little bit too. I don't know. I mean, the CIA may have loved Derrida insofar well, as like you know, you wouldn't want like doctrinaire Marxists to be the leading philosophers in the West from a CIA of course. point of view. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, like, exactly. So, like, uh, so if, yeah. if it has to get a little weird and out there like uh might as well uh go for it yeah. um also um, i believe did he was it him that uh that ended up setting up at uc irvine um, i think like I'm in the sure. 80s uh maybe he did yeah I don't yeah really he did yeah he was the uh, he was a humanities professor at uc irvine yeah. in, uh, and was there from 1986 to 9, 2004 when he died and so so that would make both Foucault and uh Derrida like French philosophers that got brought over by the University of California system to uh really you know uh give them a real nice uh nice position there and so uh I I I, I yeah I, I don't even mean it in an accusatory way um uh though uh oh though I would at one point are you familiar with Paul Deman? Um, not really. Uh, uh, so I guess he was very close with Derrida, um, mm-hmm. and they collaborated a lot. Um, but oh, I right. Think Actually, I never Paul read Deman any of his was work, a Nazi. but he was like a big Nazi. Yeah, yeah. right, right, He was, right. He was like unmasked about after he died. Yeah. yeah. This was big mm-hmm. a couple years yeah. ago. This kind of came out and it was like, again, it's like a Heidegger situation where it's like, why are you guys all hanging out with, you know, uh, thought you were a leftist, uh, but I guess eh, not. I don't know. Um... But yeah, Paul DeMann, apparently very sus. Uh, I forget. He ended up teaching at, uh, well, he went to Harvard and then I think maybe taught at Yale. Mm-hmm. I want to say. Uh, um, I, I forget. Well, he died in New Haven, but uh, but he came to New York in 1948. Um, he gave private French lessons to Henry Kissinger. Wow. Um, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Um and, uh, wow, Peter Brooks was his uh, undergraduate student. Uh, mm. Yeah, and he and then he met in 1966. He met uh, Derrida at a lecture uh, at John Hopkins University, and they became fast friends and started mm-hmm. uh, on their. Uh, and I guess demand came to reflect the influence primarily of Heidegger. Mm, uh, interesting. Yeah, um, I bet. <laughs> I bet it yeah. was. I bet. I bet he resonated on some degree. But anyways, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe we'll we'll jump into these guys, do a more specific deep dive, and like uh, maybe the. I don't know the the their role to to what extent have they impacted um I don't know like uh anything in the late 20th century uh uh oh demand a uh, big fan I see here big fan of the tri- the classical trivium Hmm. <laughs> we were talking about that before yeah. uh certain yeah. uh, people repping the trivium super hard uh in uh you know usually more Christian-leaning conspiracy theory uh, 
podcasters. You gotta or get back to the uh, trivium. Uh, gotta get back to the yes, trivium. Uh, That's their arts, Hegelian uh, dialectic. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. So uh, uh, we, the, yeah. The, there's mm-hmm. there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff. Maybe we'll do some uh, some deeper dives, but uh, I think we're yeah. we're, like, we're just we need, just shy of uh, three hours right now. So yeah, I think we can. Uh, we need like a there needs to be like an Islamic equivalent of that of like because the trivium is just like such a good meme for the cats and like the other yeah. sort of adjacent like. Uh, Tradley Christians there needs to be some kind of like Quran centric curriculum thing mm-hmm. that we can turn to I mean the Islamic uh, traditional curriculum you know had some had some good points yeah all right but we'll uh we'll wrap up uh yeah uh but I was gonna say that uh I mean not to excuse Derrida's defenses of Paul DeMann uh but he did have a good book a criti- kind of critiquing Heidegger and reading him uh which also kind of relates to what we're talking about which is a, of spirit uh, oh, okay. which kind of talks a lot about spirit uh, and the idea of spirit in Heidegger, uh, someone who, you know, we often think of as not really dealing with this concept of spirit or being opposed to it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I think that that's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like these people, you know, again, like would the like doctrinaire Marxist, again, like, you know, uh, I'm not super familiar with because like of what my background is like these, like, you know, I'm in, like in Western academia where like these are the people who, we're told to study like we can you know uh to an extent depending on who you're dealing with like you can criticize them some people are less tolerant of it but like you know uh some people do like welcome the criticism of them that is that is necessary and they should be criticized for sure like there's a lot of uh things like that you could uh criticize in like any given part of anything that they say uh i mean i don't really know too much about like what the the like soviet uh equivalents of them were is is my point you know that's another thing i would love to see as well because they definitely did have a whole bunch of like Marxist philosophers. I, I come across some names recently. I think I wrote down somewhere that I, I'd like to um, like crack open and see like what were they formulating in terms of you know because they were yeah. kind of in the hot seat. Like they weren't just sitting on the sidelines in the West, kind of being like, "Wouldn't it be uh, uh, très joli to have a real Maoism?" Uh, you know, yeah. or something like that. It was like they were in right. the trenches, like having to like do it. So I'm very curious to know, and and for that matter, like Maoist kind of theory uh, as well. Um, you know, to see like what uh, you know, particularly in the era right before it seemed to all kind of go go truly wrong, which I would say was like the 70s for the last decade, like we talked about in the uh, victory episode, like when it still seemed quite viable that like. Okay, like we we haven't reached like the the uh, ethereal heights of communism. Obviously, like we're on a long road here. But like, how do we how can we keep moving towards it and not get like psyoped into collapsing in like you know twelve years? And it seems like I don't know. Like, uh, were the theorists in the Soviet Union at the time like you know like jumping up and down, being like, no, don't do it, don't do the perestroika, like it's bad, you know? Or I don't know. Or were they or were they on the forefront of uh, incredible Encouraging certain things like uh, I don't know Gorbachev was doing, or were they spinning off? Just were they getting kind of heady and academic in their own way? Like I don't know, but um, yeah, that'd be a really I mean, cool thing to, I, to explore more. Yeah, as far as I know, like I mean, well, from my very limited experience of like Russian academia, having studied in Russia like briefly. 
like the academics that I knew in Russia like were pretty anti-Soviet like I I studied with one guy who like it was funny actually because I remember one time being in class and like some kids uh, were singing like old Soviet songs Mm. and like our professor was like they like think this is funny to do like you know like uh, (laughs) you know like I'm getting like you know like uh, like uh, uh, you know so like there definitely were like very I remember like uh well, how old we was he, if I, if I may ask? Like, do you he know was, what generation uh, he was? Yeah, he was, I don't know exactly how old he was. I guess this was around, like, 2012. Uh, he was old, you know, uh, maybe, like, in the 60s, uh, something oh, like that. Oh, okay, you know? okay. So he was, like, a boomer, yeah. kind of. Like, Yeah, he was okay, more or less a boomer. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't that ancient. We did have one teacher who was really ancient. I don't think that he would, I mean, maybe when he was young, uh, but I remember we had a fight with him because... Uh, we saw like this, uh, you know, uh, staging of King Lear uh, that was uh, kind of like uh, like Lear was Lear was played by a woman, but it was obviously supposed to be like kind of like uh, Lear was Stalin or Stalin with him in some way. Yeah, yeah, um, and. Uh, you know, our professor took, like, a huge issue with the play because, like, the idea that you could, like, humanize Stalin was, like, so awful. And, like, we kind of expressed, like, he kind of trapped us because he, like, sort of was like, well, what do you think? Like, can you humanize, like, Stalin? You know, like, and we were like, yeah, like, you know, because we both, sure. uh, you know, in our class, we liked it. Um, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, uh, we liked the play, um, or at least mm-hmm. I, I did. Um, and, uh you know, uh, he got, like, pissed, and he was like, how can you say, you know, he got, like, really, like, mad at the idea that, like, you could humanize Stalin, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Uh, I guess, you know, Khrushchev just lied so much that, yeah, I don't know, Grandchild of Kulak, maybe, I don't know, um, yeah, I mean, not to like, say no. Uh, there definitely, I there definitely are people that like in you know Russia and the former Soviet countries that view Stalin mm-hmm. as like uh, very evil. But he also has like one of the highest approval ratings of any historical figure, higher than Lenin, higher than Putin, higher than anybody. And and in a lot of cases, it's the people that actually lived under Stalin that liked him the most. So it's like well, it's very strange. Uh, <laughs> like, that's a particular culture, of, yeah. Like you know, academics, like uh, yeah, you know, true, it's true. Different from you know, uh, like and twenty like years of a Vistanizatia, like you know, popular in mm. Russia, but like they yeah. all, none of them like Putin either. Um, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, true, uh, true. Yeah. So you have a, a little um, bit of like a you know nomenclatura uh, dynamics yeah. going on, maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah, like uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the one like Russian, or, uh, who I guess is technically a Soviet like philosopher who I know like relatively well is Bakhtin. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, obviously, he was really contemporary with uh, a lot of these people. But and I'm not like the biggest Bakhtin fan. Uh, really, to be honest, uh, and I don't think you know, like uh, he was by any means like, you know, uh, a super doctrinaire Marxist. Although he wasn't like necessarily like anti-Soviet per se, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's like, also uh, there's there's Lukash floating around in there somewhere uh, who was kind of more deeply entrenched in like the like on the side of the soviets as a both like participant um and a uh and whatever i forget if he got into like little kind of like a little bit of a you know entanglements with them in like the 20s and the 30s and uh found himself kind of marginalized uh at times but uh 
but yeah. he's one. I mean, I've read a little bit of Lukacs, but uh, I, I'd kind of be interested to... Uh, he seems to get a little more attention in the West, though. It's like he's known to people who read critical theory and things like that, yeah, whereas like, the proper the Soviet philosophers... Yeah, yeah, like I feel like maybe some of them were like published by like progress publishers or but, something, you know, you know I but mean at the same time, you know, like a lot of the time people who are like really held up as like uh, you know, like Fukuyama for instance, like Yeah. You know, he was like a neoliberal like champion or whatever. Like, you know, people like in the West hate him too, you know, like people in academia like uh so like the equivalent of that is just like a mouthpiece for like, yeah, the government's base. Although I guess like maybe in like Perestroika Glasnost era then like, Yeah you know, I guess, arguing against that would be controversial so maybe well i mean even in the like, 70s like I, I think that there, there probably were certain guardrails of like you're not gonna start going making like you know arguments um i want to say that there was a like uh was it was it kolakovsky um who was a marxist uh economist from poland who i think like eventually uh yeah leszek kolakovsky um who i think eventually like did defected but he wrote the main currents of marxism which is like a huge three volume history in 1976 i think he ended up like he was an ardent communist like in his youth and like gradually sort of uh started to float away from it or feel like you know the eastern bloc was like not um not whatever uh i see he has an article from 2002 what is left of socialism uh i'll read it later anyways but we could do a little uh philosophy another philosophy day you know uh yeah in the near sure. future dig into the stuff it's pretty really uh lots of interesting yeah. interesting there shit. are definitely some and people who definitely engage with ideas of spiritualism uh as well you know uh losev i think uh mm-hmm. you know uh earlier uh so yeah definitely uh, spiritualism i believe it was yeah right. i mean yeah, i mean Lushev. if those guys in the uh, soviet parapsychology yeah. book were doing what they were doing i have to imagine there had to be some like you know philosophers or people like that that were also a little bit like quirky who were running around doing they might not have yeah. been the biggest mainstream people but might have been producing some interesting work in terms of uh you know yeah i don't know just marxist yeah. theory in general well there was like uh well um like uh i think it's like uh intuitivism or something uh mm-hmm. like that was like a kind of a big thing like a, a sort of uh yeah, like a neo well, kind of. I, I mean, I'm gonna like uh, give. It, uh, I should definitely look into it more because I'm not by any means an expert. I think it's kind of like a neo Hegelianism that was like a, a thing. I think that also was like a part of that. Um, but uh, yeah, it could be uh, could be interesting. Yeah, Maybe like uh, some kind of uh, neo uh, like uh, you know idealism or something. Um, yeah, so but, almost sounds a little bit yeah. like uh like where the the kind of like ferment that Zizek came out of as like a kind of yeah. Hegelian whatever. I I'm sure Yugoslavia had some. I'd be interested in ones that are like Yugoslavian and are like quirky and eclectic, but like not Zizek. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. just the, like I don't know. It's like um, Zizek. Zizek is the only philosopher that actually like grew up in the Eastern Bloc that is like allowed 
to like be a public intellectual like in the west and like have a career and like be cool and like all these other things it's like weird it's like that surely yeah. there's somebody else I mean, like well, out Zizek there is super unique as like a public intellectual like a yeah, like that's he true is probably that's true. the most famous philosopher living today that i can think uh, of like per, like in terms of like academic philosophers like a rock star like who else is there? yeah that's true that's true of anyone um, still living um yeah, yeah. Uh, i have to say so, so but uh anyways yeah. um okay um, well yeah. yeah apparently you know i've been told i never actually watched it but i've been told there's like a debate between like foucault and noam chomsky where like noam chomsky gets like completely owns like uh really you know, oh, oh, like wait, oh wait oh no i did watch that yeah, yeah i for some reason i thought you said fukuyama and chomsky and i was like yeah. oh that must be pathetic if uh fukuyama yeah, 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 them. Yeah, but no. no i did watch that recently it was on like uh, it was on like danish tv in the 70s and like yeah. i'm not like a huge like foucault stand but i have to admit like he just like he just like wiped the floor with Chomsky like with just like <laughs> like well you know I just think that we need to have like more progressive like what is this progressive government this is a jail <laughs> Kika shows no this is a, a, a this is childish dream you know and just like and, and Chomsky had nothing for it like he couldn't like he can only argue against like like uh like Republicans who like think that blah blah you know what I mean like he's he's such a lightweight man he's such a yeah. lightweight uh, in so many um, ways yeah and you know that's why like you know i don't think that like any of these people are like remotely you know uh just to you know uh justify our uh, consultation of these people and our citation of them uh you know i don't think that any of them are above reproach but i do think that that their their ideas are obviously very influential uh so they're valuable mm-hmm. to know and be like yeah. conversant in you yes. know uh for whatever reason you know uh, a lot of the time like these are the uh, canonical text of the Orthodox, especially like if you do any kind of like academic work or whatever, like mm-hmm. that these are the theoretical people take seriously, you know, and yep. that have like ideological weight. So mm-hmm. uh, it's valuable to know and to be able to converse in these terms, like to make whatever your own argument is, uh, you know, for yeah. better or for worse, yeah. like these are. This is our our, our our canon. But yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, definitely Foucault and, and, and Derrida as well, I think that they, uh, you know, even though they're very, very maligned, uh, Adorno, like, I'm less super down with, but, like, you know, a lot of this feels like a Benjamin, I think, is, has some yeah. good stuff. You know, a lot of them have good there, stuff. There's you some know? good stuff uh, in there. Uh, I, I yeah. do want to say, just uh, before we get out of here, I do find it, like, I've seen other people, like, say this on Twitter. I do find it a little suspicious that the year that, like, uh, our world is basically being, like, reorganized on, like, extreme biopolitical like fault lines that like nobody's talking about Foucault all of a sudden when like seven or eight years ago everyone was like Foucault 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 and now suddenly when yeah. we have this like virus thing and the great reset and like all these different things yeah, that actually feel like it would be relevant to like bring up Foucault a little bit and talk about really the would. indirect systems of control and coercion that are happening in the whole coronavirus thing that like oh suddenly like crickets from the uh, ivory tower like nobody wants well, to I, fucking yeah, I, think, I don't know maybe yeah, I'm not true. looking hard I, do, but, I actually have well I have I, I I haven't seen anything like as of yet but I do think that that book is coming out you know like yeah I think you're that's right you're out. right like give it a little uh, while again, like, <laughs> like well you know when it's like a, like it's you know when it like the the sort of controversy has died down a little bit like then it'll come out but it, it, I think that it will that's my feeling it will it will come okay. out like you know yeah, uh, yeah. you're right, um, you're right. But, but, a lot of yeah. PhDs um, gonna get minted uh, on that Foucault yeah, uh, COVID-19 mm-hmm. uh, well just think synergy. about all 
all the people well i guess a lot of people a lot of programs aren't taking phd students this year but Ooh, how uh, convenient. you know all the, all the <laughs> now yeah, nobody yeah. can write about now. well uh, you know what though because yeah. then like uh, it's like maybe because to use foucault in this context is like too offensive to the overarching like ontological narrative that is highly valorized in like elite academic institutions of like if you start to like i don't know maybe maybe people will be cool with it but if you start to point out how like you know uh the like lockdown policy and like our like you like basically governments like using the virus as an excuse to do nefarious things there might be a little like uh, like uh, i don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole because then you're going to start questioning like well, you know it depends, I think, on the university, but in places where Foucault maybe has the most cachet and, like, are places that are, like, really friendly to critical theory, like, that's the thing. That's the great irony of, like, the, like, academia, like, in the United States is that, like, you know, uh, what is rewarded with these prestigious positions is a lot of the time, like, critique of, like, the American empire and, like, capitalism and, like, all this stuff, you know, like, I think that it yeah. is, like, a legitimate argument that, like, it's very different from being, like, you know, a super doctrinaire uh, Marxist or something, or, you know, or, like, a, a like a, a mouthpiece for, like, uh, you know, some other government or something, you know, like, uh, like, it, that's very different, you know, that's, like, a sort of, that uh there's a tolerance for this type of thing like almost as especially to the extent that it can sort of be a demonstration of like the freedom to critique or something like that which i think is a huge part of it a huge part of it is that is like uh and and, you know a reward for certain people like sometimes you know it's not always the the you know it's not always through coercion and violence but through uh inducements of like hey come to berkeley and have a sweet come live in orange county derrida don't you want to live on this beautiful campus and have all this like you know this prestigious position and have tenure and be taken seriously somewhat amongst the intelligentsia (laughs) of our culture and celebrated Mm -hmm. like you know there's just a lot there's a lot of honey you can you know drip on that that uh you don't even have to you know uh scare uh foucault or tell him to stop like there's many like benign ways or seemingly benign ways of kind of like uh maybe neutralizing somebody's potentially adversarial potential to the system yeah. that we want to uphold and like the cultural cold war and i think as like that declassified ca document said like in the 80s or whatever like we love this foucault guy like he's just <laughs> nobody can believe in anything anymore everyone's just dejected and like thinks everything's jail yeah. <laughs> this t- works perfectly for us like uh the french communist party is dead uh you know now everyone just like i don't know um yeah, I think is, I remember uh, reading that, like, uh, we did we read that in a recent episode, like, uh, the one where they're, like, excited about, like, the the French left or whatever as, uh, you know, the... the we yeah, referenced yeah, it before. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we read the exact article, but it is, it is out there, yeah. and uh, we might uh, dive in more, because that was the whole thing, like, the new, kind of, like, the, the French, like, new left philosophers, the... the uh, post-structuralist all that stuff they saw that as like ideologically convenient and helpful towards the cause of like neoliberalism yeah. and u.s mm-hmm. imperialism uh yeah so. because they yeah were critical of the soviets as well you know in general yeah because um, if everything's yeah. jail you know the soviets definitely, definitely have jails and inspectors you know. of marx you know the like the uh, one of the concerns inspectors of marx isn't just like the sort of uh domination of capitalism as part of the global transformation but there's also a concern about the uh 
you know, it's not just the, the current rush, as he says, to various forms of capitalism in Eastern Europe, Russia, and China, but also, like, he's concerned, I remember at various points he talks about, like, the, you know, the becoming totalitarian, you know, the, the sort of what happened in the Soviet Union uh, mm-hmm. as well. You know, that's also something that, that he is, uh, he brings up in, in, in the book as, yeah. like, you know, problem, that, like, the, that, the repression or something, you know. That very um, loaded word, yeah. totalitarian. Um, yeah, I think he definitely yeah. uses the word totalitarian. I mean, I don't, ima- like, uh, you know, I don't know what, what probably a totalitarianism or something, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to yeah. say personally necessarily that he uses that word but uh, french is a very uh, conservative language so uh Uh yeah exactly that yeah the french word is uh just a permutation of the english word but um Mm, i'm not 100 percent sure all goes back to england um Um, anyways all right uh we should uh yeah we'll stop now we should wrap it up we've got a lot of things to to get back yes uh, later so i hope uh, that was uh interesting to people as uh you know a way to think about like these questions of like on ontology and like uh you know spirituality and the existence of like uh you know other beings or of uh you know uh quote-unquote supernatural phenomena or like Mm -hmm. maybe uh, hidden phenomena in like the the present mediascape and uh in the archaeology of that mediascape uh and its history so uh yeah uh yeah uh, you know uh, I think we yeah we touched on a lot of uh, also like uh, general like cultural tangents so uh, hopefully it's a good one yeah it was uh, fun it was fun yeah and, uh, yeah yeah uh, planted some seeds for later so uh, yeah yeah um, excited you know to do so. uh, philosophy down the line yeah 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 sorry to bum everybody out more about now you know if you're black pilled on screens now you're black pilled on like your reflection in the window because it's also spectral it's all spectral and uh i guess there's there's no escaping it uh so we just have to roll with it i guess yeah until uh, we figure it out right. more yeah all right mm-hmm. well um, yeah uh yeah, yeah. Roll with I it mean, we shall yes we'll roll with it yeah and uh yeah we uh We'll continue working towards our own, uh, our own, our own genealogy of, uh, you know, our, uh, yeah, our, our responses to, to uh, the hauntological, uh, moment. I um, thought you said genealogy. I did. Yeah. That was, my oh, okay. Thought. Although I'm probably <laughs> the first person to come up with that. Uh, no, yeah. No, no, exactly. uh, I imagine uh, someone else has, has done that. Yeah, there's a I book like called it. Genealogy. Genealogy, <laughs> Time, Islam, and Ecological Thought in uh, the Ruins of Delhi. Uh, actually, uh, you know what? I think I've read this. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So maybe, yeah. Put it on the list. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, so, I think uh, this is mostly just like an ethnography, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, spicy title, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Very, uh, probably very Deridian, uh, you know. Mm. Uh, I'm seeing time in the title, you know, anyway, but I don't want to judge anything, you know, Uh, but yeah. Um, Well, I remember uh, being having some pretty good parts in it, you know, but yeah, mm -hmm. very ethnographic, uh, good things. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Well, uh, no, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Uh, yeah. No, all right. We're going to get out of here. Uh, So uh, until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace.
Amen.